This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. But he has, but he has so much to gain and has such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth come back more to the and I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now these people are in very high position, Jack. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 148. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, we're back with our first round of Grotto questions for 2023, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And this is, this is Grotto Q&A number 20. We're at 20 now. XX. Yeah, we've done 20 of these. Yeah, yeah. We had a big push at the end of last year. I think we did like four in a row. Um, and then, you know, we've been quite busy since then, but figured it was time to check back in with the grotto and uh and see what's up and answer some questions mm-hmm. yeah so we got we got i think nine today lined up i think we can get to them um we were talking before recording about like various strategies we could use to go faster through these questions <laughs> mm. though at the same time i mean that's almost part of the appeal at this point i think for some people is that Does it, i mean i've always said spend, like how much does know. it really matter you know like it only matters in the sense of I, I like spending an hour on every question. I'm totally mm-hmm. cool with that. I guess yeah. it's a matter of working through the backlog because as we're starting today, we're still in uh, November 2021. <laughs> yes. Um, right. But, you, you know, as we've as, as mm-hmm. we pointed out many times that there's often like a strange synchronicity thing where the, the question sort of ages like a fine wine or it takes on a different context like a year later when we actually get to answering it, right? Mm-hmm. It happens quite a bit. And um, and actually, yeah, it's going to happen, I think, a little bit today, as well as like some just evergreen ones that are that are interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're just going <laughs> to, we're just going to, we're just going to fly, yeah. we're going to freestyle it and we're going to see what happens. But I think we can make good progress today. So, yeah. Um, yeah, why don't we just jump in? You want to read the first one? Sure, I will. Uh, Loich, uh, am I ever saying his name right? It has like an umlaut, I feel like, on the I uh, in, in the grotto. Loich, he is like French, right? So do you think yeah. youth ecological movements, uh, sorry, ecological movements, ecological, do you think the youth ecological movements that have appeared the past few years can be compared to Wander vocals and possibly... An indication of eugenics creeping their way back into popular discourse. Interesting. Uh, hmm. I've heard this before. Uh, I've, I've heard. I've seen this pointed out. 
Yeah, uh, we've gotten a couple of questions from Loic that are like uh, those kind of like comment questions where it's like, do you think like here's something that uh, I'm proposing? But yeah, that's an interesting idea. I don't know. I mean, I think that there certainly can be a comparison made, but I don't know if I would like equate the two. Uh, I think there's like many different aspects of the context that like make each unique. But of course, there are, I think, as he observed, like certain themes that are consistent between them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, especially in the last few years, I think like Greta Thunberg certainly has a bit of a Wander Vogel vibe a little bit, even though I think historically in Germany, the Wander Vogels were kind of male dominated and only certain kind of factions of them even let in girls. Um, And in fact, it was sort of known for having a sort of homoerotic vibe to it. Um, Yeah, it's kind of like a Boy Scout type thing. It was kind of like a Boy Boy Scout Scout actually would be like a more, you know, facile comparison, I guess. Um, Yeah, yeah. I just read. I don't know. What's an example of a youth ecological movement like? Um, Extinction Rebellion or something? Uh, Yeah, I mean, to some extent. Yeah, Extinction Rebellion would be one example. And uh, I'm trying to think about other ones. But just like radical anarchists, um, like eco-anarchists perhaps, you know, up in the Pacific Um, Northwest might be kind of... I mean, honestly, the big comparison a lot of people make, I think like back in the day... Like Deep Green uh, Resistance. Yeah, I think back in the day, uh, Jan Irvin used to talk about how, like, the hippies were, like, a re-manifestation of, like, the Wandervogel and Mm -hmm. stuff. And, of course, he saw it as, like, this sus, like, you know, archaic revival, like, Frankfurt school thing. Honestly, yeah, I almost feel like that is also, like, a more, like, the concern with nature and, like, the opposition to... Industrial, like you know, industrial society, like in a way, or but um, but I feel like there is sort of a different orientation in a way where um, one has kind of that nostalgic cast to it, like obviously the whereas the other one is like you know more like we need to like strategize a different future that's like away from this, you know, it's not doesn't necessarily You're have that. Hippies are more like that. No, hippies are like that, but I mean, he's talking about modern day youth ecological movements that have appeared in the past few years right so i see yeah i would say that yeah yeah. whereas hippies i do think actually had that kind of like nostalgic sort of yeah like uh, a little bit of an archaic revival element as we've talked about so many times right so mm-hmm. um, that, you're right, actually, that I think that the, like the, primitivism, the con- things like that. So, yeah, yeah a lot of even though I, I think as we've like referenced before that a lot of that like Extinction Rebellion type stuff today, um, even though a lot of it does play with like ideas of like deep ecology and like Murray Bookchin and things like that. And like these kind of eco anarchist ideas, it has a much more kind of like big money tech NGO kind of gloss to it. And it's all about getting like the stakeholders in society to like build uh you know renewable energy or to deindustrialize or like you know uh promise they won't use oil anymore and things like that it's very there's a there's a very different kind of orientation in terms of um it, it's much more like pol- you're right like politically focused and well, yeah. is agitating for like very specific things whereas maybe both the wander vogels and the uh and the hippies it was a little bit more uh, well, here's not what as I'll, politically 
laser focused. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not actually I think that there is perhaps an element of like sort of experience seeking in like some like in activist movements like broadly. But it's a like so my initial like, you know, my initial reflex was like, well, you know, both von der Vogels and hippie, the hippie sort of movement or the sort of, uh, you know, that period of time, the the cultural trends and, uh, you know, that people compare to the, the von der Vogels. Um, those were definitely about like, you know, having an experience of like going out into into nature and disconnect, you know, uh, tuning out or of of industrial society or, you know, being anti-civ and then going out and like having an experience like in the woods, you know, getting away from society. Whereas, again, I do think that people sometimes do have a like sort of uh, ex- uh, thrill seeking or experience seeking orientation towards like activism. And I think that that like, you know, when people like are getting like photo ops of themselves being arrested and stuff like that. I think there is like an element of that to like contemporary activism in a way, but the experience uh-huh. that's being sought is like very different from like going off into the woods and like reviving old, you know, Teutonic values or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think the Wander Vogels would be publishing like how to blow up a pipeline, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Like no. a very performative kind of activism uh, or, you know, like school strike Fridays or whatever Greta was doing or like shut down the metro like that doesn't seem like that was as much their uh, their vibe. They were more retreating from industrial society. And I mean, as a, the, the bringing up of eugenics is interesting because, well, it brings to mind the kind of interesting relationship between the Wander Vogels and the Nazis which I just read like a couple articles about this to get a little background. But, you know, Hitler actually banned the Wandervogels pretty much completely Mm -hmm. after the Nazis came to power. And he actually outlawed hiking. (laughs) Hmm. He thought that hiking was like sus and basically like that. But what he did at the same time is he sort of took a lot of the like structures and the broad strokes of the Wandervogel movement and incorporated it into the Hitler Youth, which then mm-hmm. every German child was like basically forced to join. So then, in a sense, but then everything that was sort of, you know, more uh, in the Wandervogel thing, more focused on like wandering around in nature and appreciating its majesty, things like that were all kind of gamified and changed into so instead of going on hikes you would go on marches instead of you know wandering around like picking flowers you would play like capture the flag or hide and seek and like Mm -hmm. all these games you know that are kind of militarized and so they managed to kind of you know uh kind of bend both the wandervogel thing and like the boy scout movement and things like that they managed to kind of meld together this new nazi version of it which you know hitler was like a huge a fan of and then i guess even after world war ii in east germany you know in all the communist countries you had the young pioneers which is very much like a sort of boy girl scout type you know organization um and i guess i was just reading this you know uh so like grain of salt but they were saying that you know hiking was also considered sus in east germany for like slightly different marxist reasons like it's a bourgeois pastime that's like hyper individualistic and blah and you're like withdrawn from society and you're you're like opting out of like the political struggles that are going on around you by being like a hippie also interesting 
one of the lasting legacies, I guess, of the Wandervogel movement is like the European sort of youth hostel kind of culture, mm-hmm. you know? Like we've yeah. stayed in hostels before in various countries and stuff. Yes. And it's very common in Europe to like to this day, like backpackers and stuff kind of, you know, wandering around from city to city. And that was something that a lot of the Wandervogels like had set up these like travel hostels, I guess, throughout Germany before the Nazis came around. And so you get these kind of like hippie-ish sort of long haired, like scraggly hiker people uh, that are kind of bohemian, like wandering, you know, from city to city, staying in these hostels and stuff. So uh, so that's still kind of around today, which is interesting. And um, and I mean, eugenics, I do see eugenics vibes in the modern day climate movement to be perfectly honest. I mean, I see eugenics vibes in a lot of things that are going on these days. And like, particularly in the way a lot of these things converge and swirl together, you know, um, I think that, I don't know, there, there's many different things that we could probably like critique about things that low key are kind of like, I mean, and, and things in like the biotech sphere about, you know, gene editing, you know, embryos, like, designer babies crisper you know stuff like we talked about in the ray alien episode um these things and just like the drive towards kind of optimization all these weird like integralist zoomers that are trying to like breed their children to be super children or whatever the fuck well yeah i think that i mean and there is certainly like an environmental element to like uh nazism that was like yeah and i think it's interesting how these uh, you know what you were describing is actually pretty interesting how the uh sort of instrumentalism of it like comes out like again yeah like this sort of tendency of retreat at first you know maybe it was uh I mean, I don't want to say that it was opposed to, I mean, it probably was in some ways opposed to like existing power and perhaps in some respects always was seen to be oppositional to the objectives of Nazism, as many things were uh, that just weren't under total control of uh, the party. <laughs> but, you know, the it's interesting how those that tendency then can be assimilated and can uh, be directed in a way that is deemed to be useful once it is you know uh once a mode of controlling it is is produced yeah or, yeah. yeah and i think that you it, can it, definitely oh, i'm sorry i think you can definitely see aspects of that uh with the um with the comparison to uh environmentalism i think there's definitely i mean as you say there's like a uh an instrumental aspect there's an instrumental aspect to all discourses i mean we've been talking about that um, to I mean, well, to a lot of these discourses, like that we talk about that with reference to the the criticism of the CIA, for instance, which has like been a big thing where it's like only like how why is it that like Tucker is criticizing the CIA? Well, there's an instrumental purpose to it, and in fact, there's like a dialectic where the discourses that are produced by sort of one side in this dialectic, um, or you know, one political faction. Uh, are then like inevitably marshaled against it by the opposing side eventually for subversive reasons like the yeah. for instance during the bush administration all like people like tucker were cheerleaders for the iraq war they weren't critics of the cia they were any, or anything like that and it was people on the left the left political faction in the united states who were critical that of the critical. intelligence community and things like that mm-hmm. now you know that's an amazing 
it's not only that it's flipped, but that's a useful strategy to deploy against your opponents because you know that they credit that. You know that it will disarm them because you know they don't like the CIA. So to say like, oh, you know, you're the CIA or something, that is, you know, it's the same. Th- again, the analogy made before was to, to racism, I guess. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. now yeah. racism is considered by both to you know, definitely has a negative connotation. No one wants to be accused of being, generally people don't want to be accused of being racist. But, you know, obviously that hasn't been the case in their uh, various times in uh, American history. Um, you know, there have been people who have thought, you know, the KKK, for instance, is good. Now, mm-hmm. like people will say like, oh, the Democrats, the original KKK as like an insult exactly. when in the past, yes. like, you know, um, the sort of conservative faction in American politics would have been sort of, uh, concern trolling about whether the KKK really is so bad. Um, uh, yeah, 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 exactly, um, exactly. Whereas so you uh, see that with environmentalism, I think as well, where it's like, oh, well, yes. this is a great excuse to be eco-fascist if we want to be concerned about, like, you know, the environment. Absolutely, um, and you know what? It also goes back to what we were just talking about in our sus psychedelics series about like the way that psychedelics could be instrumentalized by you know people really of kind of any political persuasion, but you know, we're particularly talking about the right wing co-optation of that. And when you look back at the the hippies in the 1960s, we do see quite a bit of that, like shot through it, where I don't think that all of the luminaries of like the 1960s were like secret Nazis, but you could definitely see certain manifestations of that kind of psychedelic counterculture start to spin off into, I mean most obvious example would be Charles Manson where he's using the trapping. And in fact, Charles Manson's big thing up until like when he died was, wasn't his slogan Atwa, which meant like air tree water or something. <laughs> yeah, like he sense. was like a hardcore kind of eco-fascist basically, you know, uh, especially in like his later years, like in prison, he mm-hmm. was all about talking about the environment and, you know, back when he was running around kind of posing as this hippie, but he's actually kind of like a Nazi, like street pimp, you know, person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, up to, you know, God knows what. Um, he's like kind of luring all these people in and then, you know, getting them goosed up on like psychedelics and speed and inculcating them with like some really wild eco fascist shit that is, at least for a while, under the guise of being like, beautiful and like all love and you know mm-hmm. what's the the song they sing all is love all is love all is love you know like <laughs> it, it like it's kind of happy but also scary but you know so i think that um there's like a a kind of similarity there where even something that's very oppositional to like the system that's in power um can either be manipulated or aspects of it can be appropriated by nefarious forces and then used with like a kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of way. And I think getting everybody really uh, scared and concerned about the climate and then offering like a very particular set of solutions and even framing that whole, you know, uh, that whole challenge in a very, very kind of narrow, specific way that, we know like the NGO movement and the kind of climate movement that is very establishment linked and very like you're very like American and EU dominated. You can kind of see them uh, kind of instrument like pat launder through ideas that in other contexts would be 
not popular and not accepted by people, but like when pitched the right way, when spun with the right PR, then, you know, maybe people will, will do it. Like, I'm just thinking about kind of like Alison McDowell, like sort of dystopian visions of, you know, like future climate lockdowns kind of thing. People used to talk about that during the pandemic, about how this is kind of this whole vaccine passport lockdown kind of stuff is uh, this is kind of a trial run in the future. And I think even some like climate people were like openly kind of saying this back when there was much more public support for it. They were like, yeah, you know, this is a great thing. And like in the future, like when people are using too much carbon, like we could lock down for the climate. Right. Well, there is the whole thing of like nature is healing because people are like inside more. I mean, Uh there probably Uh is some truth to that. Like if you turned off like a lot of these big like stadiums, you know, like the Astrodome and stuff like that, probably would be a big help uh, to the, the, you know, solving these problems more so than like, but that's the thing. Like it's uh, implicit in that is that we're a disease, like we're a parasite on the earth, right? I mean, well, there we human beings aren't a disease or a parasite upon the earth, like necessarily. However, like the Houston Astrodome is a parasite on the earth. Like mm. no, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's both true and I'm also resistant uh, because, yeah, I think there's often a confusion between instead of blaming the biggest sources of kind of pollution that exist, we end up blaming like we individualize it and personalize it mm-hmm. in this very neoliberal way where it it the guilt is collectivized, right? Yes. And then the profits made off of the well, thing that caused really the problem. Well, it's not really fully collectivized because it's actually like people, we individual people bear it most. Um, right. Whereas it's, it's, it's regressive in a way where it hits like the masses of people the hardest. And then like and then all these rich people can go to like Davos and say a bunch of bullshit and assuage their own egos and be celebrated for saving the world. And so they don't actually have to feel bad as they fly around, you know in their private jets and whatever. So that that's a shitty dynamic to have to deal with. And yeah, I mean, I'm I I'm just like generally a little bit skeptical of like really hardcore eco anarchism or like climate change extremism of uh like we just have to fucking do something now. And it's like, okay, yeah, but like what we decide to do is actually quite a significant question. And I don't think it's as simple as, I don't know, like these governments like like America and like the EU like saying, oh, like by 2030, we're going to have, you know, some ridiculous like emissions target. We're going to cut out all of our oil, but they don't. But like they absolutely hate nuclear energy. They I don't know. It's like it, it has sus vibes to it because it doesn't feel like it's being it feels like you know like china is maybe going about it in a kind of logical way where they're like they're continuing to use dirtier energy because they are the world's industrial powerhouse and Mm -hmm. that's just what they're going to do but they're also building like ridiculous amount of like wind farms and like electric high-speed trains everywhere and like they're clearly kind of prepping for you know like a gradual transition like when they can kind of moving towards a more ecologically sustainable kind of model and honestly i mean because they have so much industry they probably they have much bigger challenges than uh yeah than we do though our, our a lot of our lands are poisoned from when we were an industrial powerhouse like the uh like the town that my you know my dad grew up in in like central connecticut like this factory town he said when he was growing up when the uh the rubber plants and stuff were there uh the river was just pink <laughs> like 
like all the time like you, you couldn't swim in it like it was fucking pink and like that was just sort of accepted by everybody as like okay like i mean but it was just like like massive industrial waste and chemicals like floating down the fucking nagatuck river and you know now like that factory i think got torn down in the 80s and now it's a super fun site and you know there's nothing there anymore but like the land is still probably poisoned and shit mm-hmm. and that's probably true of like so many places around the rust belt and like and you know then you throw in like modern industrial farming and the chemicals and like you know, california central valley etc cetera, etc cetera. like we have a lot of shit we could you know have yeah to it's true like we haven't up. even really like tackled rather like even beyond the large scale like destruction of the environment or like the the you know the changing of the climate even like the old like 80s and 90s type of pollution like is still rampant it's still rampant yeah like, but like the shit that like RFK Jr. was like popping off on like back way back like what he made his name on back in the day before he became a dangerous mm-hmm. anyways uh maybe we'll talk about him later but uh but yeah it's like that type of thing like the Hudson River is being poisoned by all these companies who just don't give a fuck like we there's a ton of that going on in America and you're right like even after we deindustrialize maybe it's uh, maybe nature is healed a well little, we're not going to deindustrialize that's a thing like it's totally possible, and this, you know, to get back to Loch's question, uh, in terms of like whether eugenics is like coming back into the popular discourse, I don't really think it has ever left the popular discourse. It's really like a perennial fascination of people, right? Like, and especially the elites in very it, it takes different guises, but like they've always been in sometimes yes. it's sublimated. I think the late sixties, like the population bomb book and like the Club of Rome and like, oh my god, like we're gonna have too many people on Earth, you know? Yeah. Like that was a sublimated Cold War era version of like we need to get rid of some of these fucking poor like brown people. Like this is too much, you know? Yeah. And um it, it's like if you read between the lines and saw some of the same people, like their lifetime allegiances you'd be a little sussed out and i don't know just like georgia guidestones bullshit like right yeah clearly well yeah that's like one solution is like billions must die like you know or i don't even know if that would solve any of the problems that are being like posited however like that's you know the one solution is that like built like you know billions of proles must like be destroyed because like you know they're taxing us with their lives and frankly whether it's like an actually like a, a program of like eugenic extermination like that basically i feel like that almost has been the decision that's been made like to minimize the impact but like yeah you know people are gonna die and but it will you know that's acceptable i don't really know what the long-term yeah. plan is but it doesn't seem like any like anyone's actually gonna do anything about it they're just going to allow the climate to change and we'll just have to adapt our lives to it such as they are. I don't know. Like, That's kind of my instinct of like how it's going to probably end up going down, which makes it weird that there's still kind of this belief that we like if we change everything right now like we have they always change the date but it's like we have 10 more years before it's irreversible we have five more years sometimes now people are like no we're fucked like we waited too long Mm -hmm. it's over yeah and stuff and i mean that's a genuine political challenge of trying to like radically change the economy for a thing that like hasn't happened yet you know it's a lot easier to get people on board when when i mean now we're seeing a there's little shit that goes on like the rain the california saw this year my my place flooded five times it was ridiculous like it was so much rain i've never seen that in my entire life so like that's a little weird and then 
other strange weather weather patterns around. I guess sea levels rising in the long term is going to fuck up a lot yeah. of you know coastal cities. Um, but we are going to have to. It's not like there's going to be one day where we wake up and like the climate killed all of us. Like it's going to no, be a slow moving disaster. No. And it's over the course of years and years. Yeah. And and like and it's going to hit. It's not like going to be like the South Chomsky hardest. thing of like this is where humanity is going to be destroyed like we're you know this is the extinction that's why donald trump is worse than adolf hitler or something you know <laughs> which is like okay well has joe biden is joe biden also worse than hitler is obama worse than hitler because like no one like really has achieved like this sort of transformative or has even yeah. set in motion this like transformative process whereby like this is going to be prevented i mean i'm sure that things people have done like you know china or uh you know uh, to whatever extent, like European and countries and in the U.S., like I'm sure that like they obviously it could be worse. It could like accelerate it more, but like you know, it's not like yeah. I think what you said is right that like people have kind of have this sort of very uh, deep seated aversion to like accepting that like the deadline passed or whatever. I don't know, like. But there's no magic bullet kind of solution. Yeah. And so it always kind of gets tweaked like, oh, well, you know, we have this many more years to like achieve this new goal of like, you know, all this bad stuff's going to happen. But like, at least we won't have this happen or whatever, you know, like at least we don't have this worst thing happen. It's like, well, it always could be worse until we really reach the point, which, you know, I feel like at that point, uh, I don't know, it's life will find a way it won't be elon musk going to mars and us all living in a martian paradise it'll be like um you know yeah them all living in a bubble city rich uh, exactly in a bubble city as we brought up before like yeah. maybe all these these uh you know terrarium dome kind of plans that all these billionaires have is really uh, not for mars but for earth when you could have like air purified like techno smart cities that are protected by a bubble you know if things really do get that bad and everyone else is left out in like the wasteland um like the ultimate gated community really and i mean when you look at what that's exactly government what it will the, be like <laughs> yeah if you look at what both the government and the private sector are like really investing most of their energy and money into still these days it's like for a better apparatus of like surveillance and control of people yeah. is really what it seems like they're really bank everything from ai to like fucking psychedelics to all this like tech you know everything about the internet infrastructure is really like boils down to like being to track and control and surveil everybody and like manage society so that kind of tells me that they're what they're really banking on is like ooh, this might at some point cause extreme civil and economic unrest and at that point like if we have to put the boot down like we're we're shining our boots right now. We're gonna be ready for it. And I don't know if like you know eco anarchists like blowing up a pipeline. Which by the way, like I'm I'm just not okay. about. I'm not. I don't think blowing, especially after it does hit different after Nord Stream, doesn't it? It hits a little different. That's a war crime. What you know? What based Brandon did? What Dark Brandon did was a fucking international war crime. And like also one of the biggest emitting events. I don't think you. Can I almost blow up thought when I first heard the title of without... how to blow up a pipeline, I thought that it had to do with that. But I guess not. <laughs> it has to do with like yeah, like eco terrorism. Which you know, I'm not going to say like uh, that. I mean, there's definitely worse forms of terrorism to commit 
like that the United States commits on a daily basis against people in the global south and in the Muslim world. But I would honestly um, be more sympathetic if it was like you're blowing up a pipeline in a country that was like the main source of like the U.S. military's energy and you were like disrupting U.S. military operations by like blowing up that pipeline and like like that I would be much more sympathetic to than just like you're blowing up a like oil pipeline that just like is for civilian you know what I mean like for civilian use because then what's going to happen you're going to be demonized they're the feds are going to come after you if they haven't infiltrated you and like aghast you have to do it in the first place already and then you know it's it's probably not going to move the needle in terms of like public opinion in fact it might provoke just like you know like gladio days like years of lead in italy like doing super edgy uh pressing that ultra left terrorism button in crisis in the kremlin like can have a (laughs) a negative whiplash effect that no yeah you're right it's, back it's not very you. it's not very effectual um no especially if you're a bunch of like verso book ass dsa people that are like i'm going to blow up a pipeline like uh no you're not first of all second of all like if you do yeah i well of like, course it, i mean i'm not really up on like this whole thing but i have there's no question in my mind that none of those people are going to go blow up a pipeline it's like posing yeah. It's like, oh, that's really, I mean, cool. like, look of what a badass course, I am. The, guy, the original guy who wrote it is Scandinavian, of course, right? Because, like, I just don't know where, I have nothing against Scandinavians, but I do kind of wonder, like, where they get off. Like, being, who appointed them, like, the, the secret chiefs of, like, the climate movement? Like, y'all have tons of oil. You live in an icy northern area that's probably going to get nicer, because of climate, it might flood, but like it's gonna be have like a well, nice you know what? They probably like, I mean, I'm not saying I don't know anything about the person who wrote the book or anything about like, yeah, I don't know anything about the film, I don't know anything about any of this, so you know, and I, uh, but you know, I could see that perhaps some of the concern is anxiety about that, exactly that, right? Those are the places that are going to be the least affected, like the people who are already being affected are people, yeah, like in Africa in mm. you know south asia uh in south america etc like the northern regions of the world are going to suffer less you know sea level rise and stuff like that but they won't you know it's the uh the places where uh you know the global north is gonna be in a better position like when mm-hmm. uh things it, uh develop further so yeah. they might be and concerned that, that about feels- people coming there <laughs> Uh, oh, that's know. true too. Is that, and yeah. also that, like, when people like from the global the camp south of the Saints type of situation, up, you know, that's why there's uh, this must not happen, right? That's the ultimate. There's terror. gonna be a point where they get overrun, like people, the rest of the world comes for them, and you know, then they're right. And like, that's, it, and I very much agree with your point, which is that the preparation isn't to prevent like the changes in the environment that are going to cause that. It's to deal with that problem and control mm-hmm. it, right? It's like gonna be. It's like about ha- being waiting at the border with guns to stop at the camp of the saints, rather than like actually stopping like the uh, injustice and the you know the predations that have uh, led to this. Yeah. Like, it's about stopping the climate refugees at the border and then diverting them to a very comfy Compass Pathways refugee camp where they'll be given MDMA yeah, and allowed right. to process the their experiments trauma can be done and, upon them. Yeah, exactly. And given an Esalen TED talk about indigenous reciprocity, mm-hmm. um, that's yeah. really what it's going to be all about. Exactly. Um, it just feels a little, yeah, it feels a little sus that like 
the kind of the most northern, whitest, and also oil producing and like NATO belonging ass people are like the most concerned. And I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I know there's definitely probably work and discourses and NGOs and stuff like that going on in places like Africa that, you know, like equatorial places that are going to be really heavily affected. But I feel my just my my general sense is like that most of those countries are more worried about like actually like building up their developmental capacity and their economy and like they're like I don't know maybe building power plants and like if it has to be like a natural gas or a coal power plant like you know that they want to get in on that one belt one road like they still have to catch up to uh in an economic sense in the sense of economic development like to you know the sort of the northern countries and they're kind of so I, I don't see as much like it's like weird, like the richest, like Scandinavian ass people are like talking nonstop about climate, climate, climate. We got to change everything, blah, blah, blah. All these people are going to die, blah, blah, blah. And the people that are going to die don't see like they're not obsessing over it as much. And even though like they, they might face a very real threat, like in the coming decades of, you know, some of these places becoming like too hot to to even live in. Right. And so I don't know. I just it it that's interesting to me. Well, I'm not saying for that, like, people you who know, truly have no power whatsoever, yeah, obviously don't care because there's nothing there's there's nothing that they can do, you know. And people who have like a have little bit of power, yeah, like well, yeah, exactly. And like uh, being able to like take off like you know work or whatever to go to a protest to like or you know throw soup at a painting or something like <laughs> that. Uh, you know, is in a way like a luxury that the people who really don't have any kind of, uh, you know, uh, social capital, like can't do. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're too busy, like working themselves to the bone to like survive um, and to keep going like day by day, you know. So, yeah. And then people who have a little bit of power, like they're not concerned with that, like for, you know, uh, righteously uh, so, because uh, really the people like and China, yeah, China is like definitely in terms of like a country, they produce a lot of like greenhouse gases. But I mean, you have to think about like a lot of the world is China, like a lot of the people in the world are are, are Chinese. Um, mm-hmm. And like, it's still ridiculous that like the U.S. produces as much as it does in terms of like these, you know, these uh uh, oh, per capita, yeah, it's not even close. We, per capita is not even close, but even if you don't so do much. it per capita, like or the U.S. is comparative, like you know, comparatively smaller, like you know, uh, it still is worse. And um, you know, the biggest emitter, the biggest single organizational emitter of greenhouse gases, I think it's still true to this day, is the United States military. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, but that's like essential. Like they're essential yeah, workers, they're so essential like they don't workers. count. Yeah, exactly. Okay, like uh, so, the U.S. war machine absolutely critical uh even though it's the biggest emitter in the entire world okay um that you know that's convenient um so you know it's like hard to take people super seriously when yeah the one hand all these like swedes are like oh we have to you know like go and strike for the climate and then they're like oh please let us into nato Slava Ukraini, like I don't know, and just like fuck off. Well, like, you know, I, I don't want to pass judgment on like your average person because, like, maybe you know, again, again, it's sort of a bourgeois thing where like you're trying to true. do. I something. limit that to the influencers. That yeah, like um, it, it's a it's a it's a very bourgeois thing in many ways to be like sort of you know striking for the climate or something. And it, well, the thing is, as you said, it's 
I don't know which is more ineffectual, blowing up an oil pipeline or doing that. I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to create a doom porn and say that, you know, people should despair of this. I mean, yeah, the best you could hope for is that Yamukiyama happens before, you know. I mean, this is probably part of that. Uh, honestly, but um signs and wonders. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the solution would be because it would be like the people taking back power and, you know, making uh, a decision to the benefit of everybody like in a truly mm-hmm generous way but i don't know how that would happen yes that's the critical that's like the missing fucking jenga piece of the whole thing for me is that if you do not change the polit if you do not have some kind of like real substantive like political revolution basically that redistributes power and like how resources are being allocated to everybody like it you're gonna have a a dystopia like when things get bad with the climate and i mean if we accept that things are going to get bad with the climate kind of either way at least if you had a different system you could figure out ways to mitigate it or kind of move people around in a more uh, actually equitable way but like as, as long as we have like these you know uh capitalist institutions and billionaires and like weirdo fucking politicians in charge we know that's not going to happen. Like they're going to end up uh, kind of serving the ends of the current system, which is like going to be like gated community mentality, like let billions of people die or whatever while pretending that's not what we're doing. Uh, and like, and the, the people that already have the most power and the most wealth are, are going to insulate themselves from, yeah, the horrible shit that's going to happen. And that's really and like, you know, if you're just like these doing these protest actions things, you're ultimately just kind of like begging. I mean, I guess it goes because like maybe who you're begging is like you're begging all the people to like wake up and then like seize power back. You know, like maybe if everyone realized how urgent this is, like, but everyone is like so either like anesthetized by bullshit or just like yeah. unable to get out from like their routine and like just trying to like... And so immiserated and just trying to live day by day like mm-hmm. you know obviously this is like the ultimate this is basically the pr- central problem of all politics like why doesn't everyone just like fucking end this bullshit but i don't know like you know obviously i don't have the solutions as i've always said and i like hate mm-hmm. people who pretend that they do you know and i don't want people to be in despair because of that but also like you know i'm not gonna lie and pretend that i feel that you know there's some hope that i don't feel so i don't know but yeah um without without being too you know doomer down like yeah because i'm not saying there there isn't a solution out there it's just that like i think it's important to be honest that uh one is not ready made like out there right now that you can and certainly begging like like, you know in the current political system it's not possible like because no. and begging them like it's they're not going to do anything to not about be possible. it. They're not going like, to actively exactly like they're not going to do anything about it. And the, you know that's where there's kind of the element of retreat. Maybe you know bringing it back to the von der Vogel thing. Yeah, like the whole idea like oh you know we're going to retreat, we're going to get away. You know we're disgusted by these people, we're moving away from them. Like it's a similar thing where it's like you know just kind of throwing up your hands because maybe even if you imagine that they're going to be influenced, like it's still ultimately like. I don't know. I still feel like it's ultimately uh, not product, not productive, or it doesn't. It ultimately doesn't uh, have an impact on those people, um, or it ultimately doesn't. It can't move the needle because, yeah, as you said, the system yeah. is configured in a certain way. Where so, in a way, even though 
is behaving as if like, you know, we want to change the system. Like, you know, you sort of just like put, throwing yourself at the feet of these people. You're registering your disgust, not necessarily by retreat, but you're registering your disgust by like, you know, uh, stopping the metro or something. But you're still just registering your disgust. And that doesn't make any real impact on the people because they don't care. Like, and even if they do care, it doesn't actually change their behavior at all. Um, no. They only anything, they only want to like them off. They only want to protect their fucking you know metaverse utopia where yeah everyone is like and that's what I think you know in terms of like oh are there going to be climate lockdowns maybe but more than that like that served as a way to like what I think it's like it's not so much like oh this is a test for something. And then we're going to like, you know, run the same program again, like in the future. There might be an element of that. But something that I think is like less appreciated in terms of COVID is like, you know, now people say it's over. But so many things have changed like this, the the way like Zoom is configured, all the rush like towards like these different things, like everything that COVID occasioned, like all of the different sort of pushes like towards certain things like, you know, the development of like video chat and like even the development of like AI and things like that. All those things like to say they're not inflected by the situation of COVID like is naive. Like those things, like a lot of the, the things that we're seeing come to fruition now were things that people attended to because of the mm-hmm. pressure that they felt from COVID. And now like yeah. just because like now the pandemic is kind of over, you know, I don't know people, some people say it's still like ongoing. Um, but regardless, I mean, I guess I would agree in a way like that is still is ongoing because we have just accepted like certain new aspects of life um, yes. that, you know, so eventually, yeah, it's going to be perpetual lockdown is what I mean. Like we're, it's just like, gonna, we're, we're going to be locked down all the time. Where, yeah. It's not yeah, like exactly yeah. a new normal. That's not like the, it's just how like 2002, you know, was not, uh, like after 9-11, there was kind of no going back to 1999 after that. Like yeah. certain things stuck. And I think it's the same case with COVID. And people are going to want to be locked down because that's going to be where the air conditioning is. Oh, <laughs> and God. that's going to be, oh, you know, like no. it's, yeah, oh, that's so dark. Yeah. Well, that's and what's going to be like in places like the in the Gulf countries. It's already kind of like yeah. that. Um, no, for for sure. For sure. And also the, the big thing that uh, I don't know if I sent you this, but. There's actually a surprisingly good like frontline documentary about, you know, quantitative easing and the zero interest rate era. Mm -hmm. And it really like reminds you of how much crazy financial fucking alchemy was going on throughout the entire 2010s. And really, it's a good reminder that like puts that decade that we just went through in proper context, because especially the covid era, because they pumped, you know, the Fed pumped so much fucking money into the economic, you know, into the financial system in like March of 2020. And we actually, I guess, were uh, facing a 2008 style collapse, like a bigger one than 2008. And they responded by dumping like exponentially more money than they did when they bailed everybody out in 2008. And, you know, that is uh, we're living with the inflation of that right now, obviously, Uh, the like absurd unaffordability of like any real estate in a major city Mm -hmm. is another thing everyone's uh, having a lot of fun thinking about. And, you know, like we're in a we're in a bizarre like economic time where you have like low unemployment, but like high inflation and all the and all these tech companies like the parties over, you know, now people talk about like, oh, when you reference something from just a couple of years ago, like, oh, that was a zero interest rate phenomenon. Couldn't happen today. 
And it's like, it's so true. All these bullshit Silicon Valley companies, it's like, I knew something was fucking off about you douchebags with your little ball pits and your yoga rooms and like all your optimistic fucking, you know, TED talks about how you're changing, you know, WeWork is changing corporate real estate forever. Everything's changing, you know, we're all making the world a better place. And like uh, all these unicorn companies that were never profitable, but like they were able to almost form like monopolies because the Fed was just going, brr, you know, nonstop. And uh, and so that's another thing that a lot of the COVID lockdown stuff wouldn't have been feasible, both with like the Fed dumping money and also, you know, the, the U.S. government doing something very weird and, you know, not typical, which is like cutting checks to everybody to stay at home and do nothing like universal basic income. And that created some very unique particular dynamics. I think that's why 2020, the summer of 2020, was so lit, honestly. Like, that's a huge factor of it is Mm -hmm. both, like, the kind of, like, the fatigue of the lockdowns and the pandemic status that we were all living in and then, like, the fact that people had money or weren't necessarily working and all kinds of stuff, like, swirling together. Um, And so I don't know. But that doesn't mean just because the zero interest rates went away and the quantitative easing... Uh, doesn't mean they're not still fucking. <laughs> they got they got plans and they're still fucking with us. Um, I think they're gonna keep doing that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah, I right. guess it's a satisfactory answer. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Too many
Alright, so Spen asked on November 18th, 2021, can you guys give your perspective on Whitney Webb's work? Um, okay. Yeah, again, this is, like you were saying, you know, that we got to go faster, but it's interesting how, you know, this is like pretty, because we were just having some discourse about Whitney Webb. I think both in the Grotto and also in the, in the P2C Discord, because she had come up, uh, you know, she had... On Twitter. Yeah, she had uh, had a, um, you know, well, I wouldn't have known because I'm, I'm blocked um, for... Oh, really? Well, yes, I'm, well, for well, refuting, like, bald-faced lies that he posted about me, despite me never engaging with him once, but... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, yeah, we're uh, yeah, we're literally completely ignored him. But then he just started mm-hmm. like sp- like spilling nonsense about me that some fucking yeah. person, I guess, emails him. Uh, I'm talking about Aaron Good, by the way, the good um, doctor himself. Yes, one of Subliminal Jihad's largest detractors these days. Um, <laughs> really, kind of came out of nowhere as uh, quite unprovoked. We should add to be uh, one of our our proudest haters and. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting because then, you know, he, I mean, he's, he's popped shots off at a few different people, I'd say over the last like six months or a year. Um, but it was just about, a, I think a week ago when he was, he was taking some shots at Whitney Webb, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think as, as it often happens with uh, the good doctor, he, he kind of got, uh, got, got a little ratio action going on, uh, I think as it's safe often. to say, yeah, uh, got uh, you know his uh, ass handed to him a little bit in the replies. Yeah, definitely not the first time that's happened. And uh, yeah, I mean, it actually was kind of illustrative of maybe like uh, yeah, kind of how I the I don't know complex feelings I have about uh, Whitney Webb's work. Yeah. I mean, this question asked about her work specifically, and uh, while I think. Let me see if I can actually bring it up because I think his what he said is actually like an interesting jumping off point. I think to talk about Whitney Webb, though sure. he sort of stumbles off the diving board and like falls in the pool backwards. Um, yeah. Nonetheless, uh, he said, "Yeah, this is on April seventeenth." Um, he shared a interview. I think uh, a recent Whitney Webb appearance on Jimmy Dore's show, and they were specifically talking about. Uh, Jamie Dimon getting called to testify in that uh, Virgin Islands kind of case uh, relating to like J.P. Morgan Chase and Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, I watched some of this. I've seen a little bit of her her coverage. Um, She's sort of on the beat of this right now. But Dr. Good said uh, because, you know, he he has a Ph.D. We want to. Yeah. My fellow Ph.D. holder. Yes. Which is I, I don't know if if the good doctor knows that. Well, it's One only recently true that I have uh, successfully defended my dissertation. Um, uh-oh, and, uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. Now SJ has uh, so. credentials mm-hmm. now. Uh-oh, yeah. Uh-oh, uh-oh, you're, you're serious. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, well, but it's, uh, you know, my degree isn't in uh, the amazing discipline of political science, which is just, <laughs> you know... Really, no one with everyone with a political science degree can absolutely absolutely just has, you know, a firm handle on everything that matters in the world. And like the most, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely a credential that's meaningful because, um, (laughs) yeah, as one of our most untainted disciplines. Yes. Um, So so Dr. Good, Ph.D. in political science uh, wrote 
on April 17th, quote tweeting this interview. Why does Whitney Webb say this to Jimmy Dore at Jimmy Dore? He's yeah, tagging, tagging him. him. Um, I think that's important because it almost yeah. seems like he's like snitch tagging mm. Jimmy Dore, like which mm. is so funny because like the idea. This this goes. To, you know, we're supposed to be talking about Whitney Webb, not not complaining about this guy. And I don't even like to like when we get any stupid beefs on Twitter. Like I don't even like to bring them up on the show, even though yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, know, like people act as if like our show is just like a fucking uh roast fest uh i mean maybe i just have like a really yeah, high tolerance for, shop for, full of beef yeah exactly like, but generally yeah. no i don't even like but it, i think it's like it it really attests to the sort of mentality where it's like do you everything that he says about whitney webb could be said like a thousand times about jimmy Dore. yet somehow like there's this blind spot i guess where it's like jim anyway continue sorry mm-hmm. um uh, yeah. Well, yeah. He says, why does Whitney Webb say this to at Jimmy Dore about the mob and the spooks without ever mentioning capitalist oligarchs, the real beneficiaries? She never even says, quote, capitalism. How does this analysis fundamentally differ from Alex Jones? <laughs> so let, let me click and read 108 replies. Um <laughs> Um, so yeah like the idea that like jimmy oh, no, Dore, well, actually, it, like who's like a full-blown okay sorry continue uh, can i just uh, let me just read it because i forgot he kind of doubles down right, okay, in a way that okay. actually is what got him sure. dragged um yeah. he says he goes on to say in this thread this is like danny Castellero's octopus on steroids i don't say this because i want to be catty or someone who obsesses over every little point it's the fundamental issue arrest mobsters dissolve the cia we still have an oligarchy of corporate wealth this can't be an oversight. She could clarify everything just by saying capitalism is organized crime, or alternatively, she could just explain why she thinks capitalism is not the problem. Much of what she says is important and on point. We should be worried about the WEF at all, plans for totalitarian and centralized control of a digitized money system, because these are parafascist initiatives to institutionalize imperial capitalist despotism. Seeing the responses here, I assume this is after he started getting attacked, I think Whitney Webb's dubious <laughs> efforts to conceal her politics just make the issue weirder. She's a right-wing conspiracist. I don't mean that as an ad hominem. I mean that she is pro-capitalist and she is a proponent of the, quote, conspiracy theory of history. So Michael Parenti has his conspiracy and class lecture. She and others would say, no, it's just conspiracy, which if people want to think that, whatever, I am in the minority regardless, and I can't expend lots of time debating first principles. The response, and then he gets attacked more and then says, the responses are just more confirmation. Et Whitney Webb has a lot of right-wing followers because people with right-wing politics follow people with right-wing politics, people with fundamentally different political views from me. There's not a whole lot else to say about it. Okay, well, then he says later to Caitlin Johnstone, good research, not so good analysis. So, I mean, he, he got dragged pretty hard. I think partly like taking a pot shot at Danny Casolaro as being like a right wing conspiracy thing, I think is a little bit like mm-hmm. I'm not saying Danny Casolaro was like a hardcore Marxist or anything, but like his work. I mean, we'll, we'll do something about the octopus. Well, yeah, day. my read on this is that. Like, OK, well, I'll, since it's coming up, I'll just say that, like, my take on this was I think we're going to talk about, you know, shortly that like. A lot of like he's not like totally off base. Like there is like a critique to be made of of Whitney yeah, Webb like not. in certain ways. However, like when he's saying like oh you know where's the analysis you know like this is this is uh, I'm not making an ad hominem. This is simply a political difference. The <laughs> everything that he said about Whitney Webb like could be said like a thousand times more of people that like he's just apparently completely cool with. Like and analysis is actually as I said 
you know, uh, earlier, like, um, you know, in, in text, like analysis is actually analysis. It's not just like a shibboleth or like, uh, you know, just something you recite where you say like, I'm a Maoist, my dude, or like heckin' communism, like is the way. Like if Whitney Webb said that, what, would that be really meaningful? Would that change the substance of like what she says? Like, n- you know, no. And like if she were, it's you know, I think point. that she is like anti-communist in a way, like, and if, but even if she said, like that she was a heckin' communist, like, and then turned around and said, like, oh, you know, you know, like uh, the predecessors of Jamie Dimon were trying to create a one world government with this, like, in collaboration with the Soviet Union, and like, weren't mm-hmm. actually anti communists, but were like somehow pro communists. Like, mm-hmm. that would not change, like, the, the substance of what she said would still be anti communist, even if she said, like, capitalism is the problem or something. You know, I don't know how that would cohere, but, you know, yeah. like, I, I think, you know, we've seen before that uh, I think Dr. Good has a very big blind spot for or he puts a lot of weight on just people like saying things, but like not questioning if somebody has ulterior motives for saying things. So like he's very comfortable if somebody wants to say they're a heck Maoist and they go on, uh, I don't know, to produce something that is like not very Maoist or is just like dumb or dilettantish or whatever um he's like yeah but you know they've stated their first principles up front so it's very debate club kind of vibes and i mean he's that that's the frustrating thing is he's not i actually do agree like with the substance of a lot of what he's saying there uh he just have, finds the, the a way to somehow make it kind of like alienating and also like slightly well also and, like who but like also like yeah sure but who cares like that's the thing like what is like how relevant is this like it doesn't you know necessarily like again like her work is still so much more valuable than a lot of people who are out there saying like i'm a heckin maoist you know like even though yeah like there's definitely flaws like one of like the class analysis like the sort of uh, Mm -hmm. anti-communist undercurrents like are definitely like the uninterrogated kind of anti-communism that like maybe yeah. seeps in from like some of the like you know even going on Jimmy Dore's show I find to be suspect you know like in and of itself like you know and again and I mean that's you one of the more left wing shows like she's yeah been on she went on Glenn Beck I, yeah exactly that's incredibly she go on Tucker no I mean she would though, probably like if she were invited though, um, ironically like it, you know uh, Aaron Good has been like talking all week after he had this thing against Whitney Webb he's like kind of soft like well Tucker actually he, you know, he that's the thing like yeah he's the biggest pusher of like how come why is it that only trump and tucker are the ones are the only ones who criticize the cia like how come no one like yeah like that's Uh, just as fucking like uh bullshit like right-wing talking point basically i literally like you know uh i saw him fucking saying that seth rich was killed by the dnc or something like uh because julian assange alluded to it uh or sort of uh, said it without you know he kind of implied it and he took him at its word so like uh well, see, that's the thing that's not very hard crackling analysis like not well, realizing it, that and i wouldn't even you could I'm make not, the I'm same sort of things of like it, why are they concealing their political beliefs you know like it's just kind of like again so well yeah why are you hyper vigilant about whitney webb but you're not hyper vigilant about what's like, interesting all kinds like of other people he it, kind of acts like, like it's his job selective. to like you know gatekeep 
uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, quote unquote, like parapolitics and, you know, just uh, throw... gaslight, gatekeep, good boss. Uh, he, yeah, right. Exactly. Well, he acts like that's um, like it's his job, almost like he's paid to do it. But I mean, the thing that would <laughs> the thing, the only thing that, uh, you know, uh, suggests otherwise is that he's very bad at it and <laughs> just is constantly like eating shit. But yeah, it's weird how he has this sort of like hall monitor complex where only he and like, you know, uh, a, a certain cadre of dirtbags are like uh, mm-hmm. have uh, the authority. Uh, they have the they're included. They're given the, the PhD ijaza to mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to uh, to expound on any of these topics. And everyone else needs to just be like shit coded into oblivion because like, I mean, yeah, that's true. But like sh- that has its place. Like there can be like maybe like it's interesting because like he also does this type of thing where he's like sort of gesturing towards like this rapprochement between like left and right on certain issues, which like yeah. I definitely can be critical of like things like that. I think that that can be very like, uh, you know, that that can be like definitely like entryist bullshit like in, in many manifestations. But mm-hmm. like, you know, when there is that like an- anti-imperialist like march that he was defending or whatever. Again, we're just like riffing or like ripping on this guy. But he did start <laughs> we'll it with me. Whitney. Never said anything yeah. about him. And he just started like making up lies or proliferating he lies. He called you the alpha guru of yeah, the well, that, parapolitics cult. That is true. But um, you are the alpha guru. That is true. No, sorry. I was being I was being ironic. So, um, you know, maybe kind of. LOL, I'm alpha LOL, guru. I'm the alpha yeah. guru. But um, I don't even know what that is. Uh, so, yeah. I guess it means like. I'm the Andrew Tate of, like, you know, our incel cult. Yes. Um, we're not the ones that start fights with women on Twitter every week. Uh, so. mm-hmm. Yeah, but any, well, there was some kind of, there was, like, that sort of anti-imperial march, right, where, like, you know, a bunch of people were boosting. Yeah, like Blumenthal, right. Anya Parampil, who, yeah. like, threw, threw her hat into the sort of trans discourse. <laughs> the, uh, the, yeah, the trans moral panic thing, yeah. Mm. And I think RFK Jr. was there as well, and... I'm sort of, I mean, God, yeah, talk about complex personalities. Another person that Aaron's like, wow, like, hmm, I don't know, RFK, like, you know, maybe he is, uh, you know, and I'm not, I have very complex feelings about RFK, like, like on the one hand, like, oh, it's so sus, but on the other hand, I'm not, like, every attack on him has been like, he said bad things about Fauci, he denigrated our holy vaccines that are completely perfect, and that kind of shit, I'm like, you know what? Like he actually is right about some of that shit. But anyways, that's very comp, very complex. Pulling it back a little bit to uh, to Whitney Webb, though. Yeah. I mean, I I do want to say first of all, yeah, like in terms of what we think about Whitney Webb's work, um, I actually have both of her books, like One Nation Under Blackmail, volumes one and two. I think volume one has Bill Casey on the cover. That's a good sign, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean. And I've I've only just started to read. I mean, I've been familiar with Whitney Webb's work since she started kind of coming out around, I think it was 2018, 2019. And I think I've been a little bit critical of her in the past, but I, I would put her in a very different category than some of the other people that we're critical of who are like big time influencers, you know, relatively speaking, particularly in these kind of like parapolitical spaces. Because what I can say about like Whitney Webb is that like she's really done a lot of real work and like these books are gigantic you know i think they're pretty like heavily indexed and stuff and just like reading through a little bit in the beginning and then flipping through a a little things there it covers a lot of bases like things that we've talked about a lot 
on SJ. And I mean, like, deep cut shit. Like, she definitely has read Alan Block's Masters of Paradise. Like, she goes in super hard on the Crown family. She mentions the Pritzkers, like, Castle Bank, all that kind of shady bullshit. And, and even stuff that we've yet to talk about yet. And, like, the, the various interlocks and connections with, you know, Epstein and this whole network. And so I think she's, like, just like we read sometimes from, I mean, we read parapolitical sources or we read things by academics or older historical texts where we definitely don't completely agree 100% with, like, maybe where the author is coming from or every conclusion they draw, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we try to critically read texts and, like, we keep in mind who the kind of the writer, the, the author is, and their subjectivity they're bringing. Sometimes we read things very critically. Like, we're only reading this because, like, uh, Midge Decker's book about Rumsfeld. Like, yeah. she's kind of telling on herself and, like, revealing her deep erotic desire for Rummy. And, uh, you know, or something like that. Or, like, Peter Schweizer's victory. Or, but also, you know, I think a lot of people we genuinely kind of um, respect, like Mae Brussel... You know, Mae Russell wasn't a Marxist. I mean, she was like a rich girl, like a California rich girl, like kind of high liberal, like a paranoid liberal, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and so sometimes, like, she could say certain things that maybe feel a little bit like, oh, that's like kind of naive. Or maybe she'll say something that's like kind of repeating some kind of anti-communist thing, like, you know, unconsciously. But generally, I feel like, you know, her heart's in the right place. Uh, another person like that is Peter Dale Scott, uh, Aaron's uh, idol, right? And really, like, the template for all of his own work, I think, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, like, Peter Dale Scott, you know, Peter Dale Scott also from, like, a very ruling class Canadian family, you know? Like, his, I forget exactly what his dad did, but his, his family was friends with the Dulleses. They'd vacation with Alan Dulles and John Foster, and stuff that doesn't mean that Peter Dell Scott's an op, but uh, it is uh, interesting, <laughs> you know, like the context that he comes out of. And he's also not a Marxist, but he did a lot of great work writing about, you know, covert activities. And I think genuinely is a guy who is like, I think he grew up in a kind of proximity to that world and eventually kind of saw a lot of sus things going on and kind of dedicated his career to writing about it. So that's great. So, I mean, and then when you even get some slightly more right-wing stuff, like, I mean, if you wind back the clock 10 years and you're reading a lot of, like, conspiracy literature, like, almost all of it had a right-wing valence, right? Uh, like, it, it's... Yeah, well... I mean, it, if you I go back to the 70s, there's more left-wing stuff, but, like, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, um, a lot of it had... If it wasn't... Not totally right-wing, but, like, there was a lot of, you know, left-libertarian vibes of, like... You know, I'm kind of like a liberal, but like Ron Paul, he's the only guy standing up against like the. Oh Pentagon, well, yeah, you know? I definitely like the, a libertarian streak. Maybe I yeah. I would say yeah. yeah, like um yeah, definitely, absolutely, probably predominantly because yeah, like there's a lot of suspicion of like the the federal government, like and they they go hand in hand, you know. So yeah, yeah, and that doesn't mean that the libertarians were not wrong about everything, or that they're wrong about everything uh, today, and some of their like the critiques they've made, and you know, I used to listen to like James Corbett. You know, is kind of an old school, more like libertarian conspiracy researcher, and people like that. And Alex Jones was more straight up like a libertarian then he became like maga pilled and stuff but i mean i i do think you know when you're saying like like aaron good poses the question how does this fundamentally differ from alex jones like what whitney webb is saying 
And I think that's like a cheap shot. Like Alex Jones is a different kind of animal than like Whitney Webb and Alex Jones. definitely different types of animals. I think that one of the big differences is honestly, I think that uh, Alex Jones is primarily like insincere and disingenuous, like with aspects of sincerity. Whereas I think Whitney Webb is primarily sincere and yeah, less sort of like agenda driven. Yeah. And less of like a demagogue. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I used to have kind of this uh, critique about Whitney Webb, I think like a few years ago, because I did pick up on this, that it's true that she doesn't really wear kind of her political beliefs like super loudly on her sleeve. She likes to present herself as an, as an investigative journalist and is really just kind of reporting the facts of the case. And I think like to a large degree, that's true. Like when you read through the book, it's basically about like the intersection between or- organized crime and Western intelligence agencies and stuff like that. Like most of the content is pretty factually accurate quality research that's kind of laid out. And it's not like complete, like Alex Jones does a lot more to spin all the information. Even if Alex Jones is telling you something that's real, he spins it much more aggressively in a way to like fit the Alex Jones cosmology of, you know, his you know, anti-globalist kind of libertarianism, whatever. And um, I don't think, like, I, I, I don't think Whitney Webb is on that tip. However, I think, especially when you get to kind of, like, the takeaway part of her uh, of her writing and, like, the, the analysis part, that's where you see a lot of, like, more libertarian kind of assumptions kind of seep in. And that's where I would have, like, the most critique of of her work like just as an example i think i sent you this of just like recent media appearances that she's been on because i was just looking to see like okay what's she up to today and like is you know can i detect any kind of you know political valence and stuff and you know it's like she went on glenn beck kind of recently she went on jimmy Dore. um she kind of is in this space of like probably appeals more to like libertarian right-leaning types these days who are maybe in some senses like more receptive to her book about Epstein and all that stuff right now mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Um, but she also like will go on like, you know, Jimmy Dore, like, I mean, Jimmy Dore is like a Tucker approved leftist. So there's that. But, uh, but the one that I, I think I forget which uh, show it was, but I mean, she was talking about uh, Jamie Dimon, like, like we had said, mm-hmm. like she was talking about Jamie Dimon uh, to some other podcaster or YouTube guy. And, you know, she was describing all the various connections and she's quite good at this. Like she has good recall. Like she knows that's what I, I, again, I put her in a different category than some other people we've criticized who are much more, uh, let's say like dilettante-ish and kind of have, you can kind of tell they're just like skimming Wikipedia articles and like they aren't, you know, they haven't, they haven't really put in like the fucking hours to make themselves like an expert on. She's passionate about the research and like, even like, even if there's flaws and there's like the, I don't know, again, this is like kind of like contaminating the Whitney Webb question with like this recent issue, but, uh, or this recent thing that sort of came up. But I think it is an interesting like conversation point, even like aside from like our antagonism uh, or our, uh, our acrimony, uh, with, with Aaron, but in academic work, there's often like a missing component, you know, there's often like an element that like of, you can never really talk about anything. Right. And I'm not mm-hmm. like saying, you know, again, this is like uh, an Aaron Good thing where it's like, oh, you know, was this peer reviewed? I don't think that American Exception was peer reviewed anyway, but 
regardless, um, you know, I think uh, like there's often like a, a missing category of analysis that you can bring in. You know, nothing is ever perfect. Right. There's always like some kind yeah. of flaw. Right. So if there's like For a sure. third, you know, a third triangle uh, that's like left out doesn't mean the rest is like not valuable. And like there mm-hmm. is. And, you know, even if the sort of analytic, I'd say like the vast majority of academic books, like there's some kind of crit criticism you can make like that where it's like oh you know they skipped over this thing you know and again like he i mean he does acknowledge he's in a minority right like there's not like most people for better or for worse like the concept of uh probably in the ideas of both of our listeners worse for most people like are averse to the like uh communism and marxism are things that most people like hate the notion of right like mm-hmm. they have a visceral negative reaction to it and mm-hmm. in a way, trying to, like, raise people's awareness about these things. Again, we definitely should get into the critique of Whitney Webb and this Jamie Dimon thing, because I think this is important. But I will say yeah. that, like, in a way, it's interesting how, like, that is kind of like, and I feel like, you know, in our own approach, the way I see in terms of, like, you know, being kind of in the same field as, as Whitney in some ways, you know, or at least adjacent to it, where this, like, comes up, like, in our sort of, you know, kind of circle or milieu. Mm-hmm. You know, my approach to this topic, it, like w- whatever you want to call it, is it's really about like marginal or unofficial discourse, right? It's really about like seeking out uh, information or seeking out like uh, like sort of outsider knowledges that are not like, you know, outside the sort of uh, official uh, sort of official narratives or mainstream narratives or, or orthodox narratives, right? Mm-hmm. So that yeah. requires engaging with people who not only do you disagree with, I mean, at least Whitney Webb isn't insane, you know, like there's people who are like just straight up like insane who still like have perhaps valuable insights. Uh, Even just you know. in the Epstein beat, like there's so many kind of like sus lords that have like, uh, that have built influencer followings that are like very, either very unhinged yeah. or Whitney Webb never bragged about peeing on dead Arabs. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> she never did that. She never flew. Anyway, but um to my knowledge, uh, I hope that she hasn't. I yeah, I don't think. I so. mean, yes, she, I I would say she was a libertarian, and that she doesn't. I say she dislikes communism or has a certain aversion to it. But that is pretty common in American culture. Like I think you know, even you know, in the vaunted uh, academe, the halls of academe, even people who are on the left, like in terms of orthodox Marxism, Leninism, or, or communism per se. People are critical, like, you know, and not all their critiques oh, are, sure. not all of their critiques are invalid, I should say, either. Like, you know, there are certain, like, you know, the, the position that, like, the Soviet Union never did anything wrong or whatever is not, like, you know, I'll say that's not a serious position, but, like, I actually mean it. Like, you know, you obviously need to be able to, your your worldview needs to be able to accept that, like, this is not, like, a perfect uh, polity that there is, like, And, like, you know, no matter which way you slice it, that is not a, uh, like, a proper Marxist position. No. That, like, literally the Soviet, you, that's, like, that's a fucking meme, you know? Like, yeah. that's not, Lenin would, like, be so disappointed in you if, like, he saw you saying that. You know what I mean? It's, and, like, no. Yeah. That's and like simply your, the idea, like, yeah, if you say, like, what about, like, you know, and I, it's funny because this is someone who is taken in by these people sometimes, like, or people like this, like, you know, what about the MAGA communist people who are just, you know, GOP supporters, basically, except, like, they have this sort of pose that they, like, you know, are uh, Marxists in some way or communists, um, or, yeah, they were just taking Marxist-Leninist positions. Like, at what point does yeah. this become superficial? You know, is like someone like Haas, like, you know, more more deserving of solidarity than Whitney Webb because he says 
you know, certain words. He's a, yeah, he's a, a vocal Marxist learnist. Yeah, like, no. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, so these labels that we apply, it's also weird that, like, Aaron Good polices these labels, but I don't think he self-identifies publicly as a Marxist or, like, a communist or, uh, like, even a socialist. But he's, like, very anti-capitalist, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, that's fine. That's, you know, I'm, I'm anti-capitalist too. Yes. But that's a, that's a little fuzzier. Of a, It's just weird to like run around policing like you never say, uh, I, I mean, I guess it's his almost, real uh, critique yeah, is you don't that, say you know, capitalism. Because I thought we're not supposed to start beef with other researchers, right? I thought that, that was wrecking, right? I thought that was, that was and clout chasing. Um, clout chasing uh, yeah. at Jimmy Dore at Whitney Webb. <laughs> like I mean he's editing the shit out of everybody um, with that, huge followings like trying yeah. to start a fight I thought that um, you weren't supposed to yeah do that but um, no yeah no, I, no matter I, what they've done you're supposed to just you know recognize that they have the same first principles so um, yeah. exactly yeah if you just say you know drench in irony that you hate capitalism, my dude. <laughs> then you're good forever. Um, um, yeah, but uh, but you know, Whitney. It's like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see anything productive about like starting like a very nitpicky beef with like Whitney Webb. At the same time, I think, I think it's fair to point out where you have like disagreements and kind of uh, maybe our yes, analytical and people do do that, for, but it's not like people do that all the time, and that is important. That should be done, but. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that. I mean, everybody. Not... We were saying like symposia. Oh, they did great work. But like, hey, there's a couple things that maybe like, like I'm not saying like they nefariously like won't touch this, but it's like, oh, maybe they they missed or they're just not as focused on this, or maybe like they have a different relationship to kind of uh, gaining respectability than like we do. Like we're a little more like wild card. So like we can go off about how it's all MK Ultra all the way down, but, like, mm-hmm. I get why they're not necessarily... And I get... There, I think there's an aspect of that with Whitney Webb that is partially just, like... I mean, she's an author now, selling her book, and, like, the flourishing sort of, like, right-leaning media sphere happens to be much more into, like, talking about Jeffrey Epstein's sicko crimes and yeah. want to know more about it than, like, a, honestly, a lot of liberals and leftists, like, took quite some time even people that focus on epstein like took a very long time to have her on or you know kind of or acknowledge her work in any way whatsoever and um and so yeah i don't think and the work itself is good you know i i've been talking to ed berger a little bit somebody said that ed berger should come on sj and uh and i've invited him on so he'll he's he'll be in a little while he'll be on but i think he provided a lot of uh she you know acknowledges him in her book as like I think essentially a research partner, uh, somebody who provided a lot of like raw research into all these criminal networks. And I know just in brief conversations I've had with him, like on Twitter, I mean, that guy really knows his shit. Like, I mean, he's up on Liberia shit. He knows all about, you know, fucking Bruce Rappaport, like all these networks, Castle Bank, like the dude knows his stuff. And I think he does have, he is more of a, a left-leaning person from what i understand so i think you know whitney webb working with somebody like that yeah i think she has certain libertarian i think her partner as well johnny venmore or vedmore um also might have certain like liber- actually he might be i think maybe he was a corbin supporter maybe at some time so I th- i'd kind of classify them as like l- like left libertarians kind of and, and so that can open up opportunities for i think sometimes like in the conspiracy 
sort of analysis realm where it could uh, that analysis can like miss the mark a little bit. And we are in very complicated times right now where it's like Tucker's calling to abolish the CIA. Davos is like a bunch of people are saying Davos is like a bunch of Maoists that want to implement world communism. Like it like the, all the signifiers and shit are very scrambled right now. And I think it's very it's easier than ever for people to get kind of spun around and like forget, like lose their kind of, you know, sense of uh, of where the political X and Y axes are at the current moment and stuff so i think okay like an example of that as you know a friendly critique would be this jamie diamond thing where she was uh she was talking to this guy a few weeks ago and she goes off she starts off kind of talking about the context of like the people that kind of put jamie diamond in power like elevated him in the early 2000s were all were deep in like the epstein network and he's kind of like their boy in a way and then she starts talking like further back like some of these other bankers and connections they have eventually she brings up something that i think is a very interesting data point that we're going to get to later um is that one person kind of involved in all this is a samuel pizar who's right. a very prominent attorney who is yeah. this uh she, she says little fact check sorry but she said the father it's actually the stepfather of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Anthony Blinken's biological father was actually a banking partner of one of the Warburgs, very powerful. Um, yes, European she does call him family. her stepfather on Unlimited Hangout. Um, oh, okay, okay, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. She, so, so she, she might have just that might have just you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, but the, she calls out this guy is very fucking interesting. And the next time we go back to Alan Block, he talks about Samuel Pizar a few times in mm-hmm. one of his books. And this guy was all up in. He was doing a lot of very weird sus um, outreach and like business outreach to the Soviet Union in the 80s. He was also the lawyer and best friend and confidant of Robert Maxwell, Mm -hmm. Elaine's father. This is a whole very rich vein of territory to kind of uh, mine. And Whitney Webb, I think, goes into it, I think, maybe in volume two of her book. But she clearly like has read up on all this stuff and knows it. Where I differ a little bit is then she brings up Samuel Pizar's role kind of negotiating business stuff in the Soviet Union in the 80s. Yeah, and he was some on the American Committee some... on uh, U.S.-Soviet Relations, formerly the American Committee on East-West Accord, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then like she, and then she talks about this committee and all these bankers that were on it that were always trying to open up more normalized like trade relations with the USSR. But the conclusion that she like draws from that is that these American bankers had like a plan since the early 70s to kind of uh, like partner with communist countries, like initially the Soviet Union, but then later China also to create like a new one world uh, you economic, know, economic economy, e- economy uh, as she says. But like but basically that this is going to be like offshoring all the industrial capacity of the West uh, over to the communist, totalitarian communist countries. And then, you know, we would control like global trade and all that stuff through the dollar and through, you know, finance and Wall Street and everything else. And thus, like, this is a terrifying, uh, you know, plot that they had to basically create like a one world economy kind of thing through like a sinister merger of 
like corrupt Wall Street capitalists and evil totalitarian communists like coming together, kind of working on the same team. And I just like that's where that's where it starts to get into kind of Anthony Sutton libertarian territory where I'm like, okay, wait, hold up. Yeah, there's that's kind of not this, the conclusion I draw from it. Again, yeah, I can see like there's like an angle to it right where like for instance like because these people would like be talking with and meeting with gorbachev then Mm -hmm. like her read on that will be like you know she takes out this quote in her treatment of this like on unlimited hangout right she like talks about you know gorbachev visiting silicon valley and she says uh, a washington post article on his visit quoted john scully then head of apple computers is saying I think Gorbachev got to us. We'll all be thinking about business with the Soviet Union in a way we wouldn't have if he hadn't come. So it's kind of like, you know, making it seem like, you know, Gorbachev is the one influencing people, you know, getting to us when really it's, yeah, the exact. Exactly, exactly. And I think one, because I'm actually reading a book for the next Demon Forces right now. I had to read a fucking book by uh, Strobe Talbot guy one of the greatest like waspy dc names ever strobe talbot longtime best friend of the clintons um you know wrote this book because i guess he was somewhat uh no he was working for time ostensibly at the time but he had amazing access into it's almost like a sequel to victory but written by like a centrist like sus maybe cia liberal um, and it's like a play-by-play of the Bush administration's like relationship with Gorbachev and the fall of the Soviet Union and stuff. And I, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I mean, that's a, it's actually pretty clear-eyed about like the game that Bush was playing to kind of manipulate Gorbachev, you know, starting and like how there were a lot of games being played that were kind of political and for show. And like, for example, Bush told Gorbachev like privately like when he was running for president, he's like, I want to continue the work that Reagan has done in like promoting peace and stuff. But I'm going to have to say some things like when I'm running for president in order to win that like, but ignore them, like don't pay attention. So he went and campaigned and was like, you know, I, I forget exactly what his attack, but you know, like we shouldn't, he's still a communist. We can't <laughs> trust him. We need trust, but verify, you know, and he was talking a much more hard line, kind of appeasing the hardliner conservatives, uh, you know, in the, in the GOP that were still kind of sussed out by all this and like thought Reagan was like going too far and stuff. So Bush, especially being such an elitist as he was, you know, had to sort of, you know, keep his anti-communist bona fides like out there. But secretly he was telling Gorbachev, like, no, 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 dude, like we're totally gonna have peace. Like keep working with us. Like there's a lot of delicate management going on of that like relationship. Also, I don't know if um I don't know if Whitney Webb mentions this in either of her books, but you know, it's funny that you bring up Gorbachev going to Silicon Valley because none other than Samuel Pizar arranged to bring Steve Jobs to the Soviet Union. I, I think it was either in 85 or 86, but it was like right after Gorbachev took power and he took Steve Jobs, who brought like Apple computers with him and shit, uh, on this like kind of official tour of the USSR. And I, I have to read more. Alan Block mentions this in one of his books, which I, jumped out at me as kind of like, what's going on there? You know, Um and kind of showing off like all this fancy computer technology and like, look, this is what you guys could have if you like turn to capitalism and shit. So there's a lot going on there. So, yeah, I don't think that, you know, casting that in a sense of like Gorbachev was like playing us some uh, Gorbachev got played. He got played 
like in a world historical like massive sense right yes i think we can agree like um, gorbachev didn't win whatever was going on there uh he you know he got he got fucked over in the yeah. end and he does everything mention, he was trying for failed he does uh she does mention uh the steve jobs trip actually she says notably apple steve Jobs was advised by samuel pisar Jobs later mm-hmm. stated in his 1985 trip that the USSR had been facilitated by an international lawyer based in Paris and that Jobs had a feeling this attorney worked for the CIA or the KGB. That exactly. lawyer was almost certainly Pizar. Uh, but the, Pizar. I- the idea that yeah. he worked for the KGB, for instance, like this is another yeah. pa- passage that I, I think is a good example and like I want to discuss. But, you know, as a frame for this, everyone has a point of view, right? Everyone has blind spots and biases, Right. So that doesn't mean that like this is not useful, but it is important and it is material to talk about like, you know, what the actual goals were. Like, was this, Mm -hmm. you know, the subversion of like American patriotism and like the, you know, the United States? Because that's kind of the picture that we're getting, like, you know, that this these uh, rogue financial, uh, you know, organizations were trying to kind of subvert uh you know american nationalism and create this mm-hmm. one world economy right or one yep. world government uh mm-hmm. you know kind of on this like totalitarian communist model but yeah you know so here's a paragraph right so she says uh, notably in the early 1970s samuel pisar told congress that the world was moving toward a single unified world economy in disregard of national frontiers and even ideological boundaries he stated that all conventional tools of national policy, it seems to me, are rapidly becoming anachronistic as the state itself, even a strong one, is no longer a defendable economic entity. Paisar also claimed the main drivers of the shift included the multinational corporation and the dissemination of technology. He later frames technology transfers by multinational corporations as giving rise to the quote-unquote trans-ideological corporation where, quote, capital private enterprises and, quote, communist state enterprises freely intermingled and formed joint ventures. When asked if these trans-ideological corporations were forces for good or for evil, Paisar responded that, I believe that on balance they are a force for good, but qualified that depending on that as depending on how governments and corporate management act to make certain they become forces for good. So that, I think, creates a certain picture. But if you look at the document, right, this subcommittee hearing uh, Mm -hmm. where he's sort of being interviewed, right, what he's actually Mm -hmm. sort of doing is creating, like, describing a strategy that the United States needs to, like, pursue in order to defeat communism. That is, like, the entire, you know, point of this. Like, he's, in fact, pitching it to Congress, right? So it's not, you know, for instance, he says, permit me to start with words that are harshly critical, even though I hope to get into portions that are constructive as well. Um, I am of the opinion that after years of unparalleled progress on our foreign economic policy in a rapidly changing world has become stale, incoherent, and counterproductive. I say this from convictions born of a rather unique perspective of an American lawyer practicing in the heart of the common market and an observer of trade relations between the West private enterprise and the East state enterprise system. I speak for no client and no special interest, but in strictly private capacity from personal belief and observation. You know, he talks about uh, JFK, you know, and his, his policy. They went to law school um, together. Yes, right. Yeah, um, Pizar and JFK were in Harvard Law School together. Yeah. They were um, friends. So he says, two decades ago, we conceived an ambitious negative policy towards the East. Its hallmark was selective embargo. In activating extensive export controls, discriminatory import restrictions, and severe trading with enemy laws, we hope to arrest the uh, economic and military progress of communist nations. That design has failed. It has failed because long-term embargoes are a two-edged weapon. If an upstart colony like Rhodesia, with the weight of world opinion lined up against her, cannot be brought to heel by means of this type, how futile is it to attempt to subdue the Soviet Union or mainland China? 
As a result, today, the United States faces two huge blocks, one in Western Europe, one in Eastern Europe, as well as a mammoth industrial power in East Asia. The first block fears our alleged economic harmony, the second our alleged military imperialism. Both are repeatedly overcome by bureaucratic paralysis dictated by political interests of their most conservative states and by diplomatic preoccupations arising from their own complex interrelationships. Yet the leverage we have to safeguard market access to these blocks and their pet-associated areas has dwindled from the time when we were chief, almost solitary architect of global designs. So the point of this is to protect our position as a chief architect of global designs. That is the United States. Not to dissolve it. if you embargo the shit out of yes. yeah if you embargo the shit out of the eastern bloc then you actually forfeit your ability to more like directly control their economies because they're cut off in a different system but if you have like joint ventures exactly you know, and access yes. to western capital suddenly you get a little tentacle in there and then so yeah Whitney Webb actually brings up the technology transfers in that same interview and casts it in a like they were very giving away light. like technology that allowed them to catch up to us like you know they which were, I've heard yeah. before that might be an Anthony Sutton line and I've heard that from a lot of more right-wing libertarian like anti-communist people over the years which I I especially don't like it because it's kind of negging and it's it's reframing the historical economic progress that like the communist countries did make by saying like they would have collapsed years ago if we weren't giving them like helping them cheat like these traders were giving them all our fancy technology and while that did go on like i think to jump to the conclusion that they were trying to even the balance of power in the cold war expressly so that we could merge like the capitalist west and the totalitarian totalitarian communist east together into one sinister world economy i don't think that's specifically what was going on yeah like you said this is a strategy of subversion and yes. like getting your tentacles in and in fact that's exactly what happened and it played a critical role both this underworld shit with people like Pizar and rapaport and others you know uh when perestroika and glasnost started happening going in and doing these like kind of joint venture things and then also like the IMF loans that were given to like Yugoslavia and a lot of the Warsaw Pact countries where they accepted kind of this poison gift in the 70s of finally taking loans from the West. And they had, you know, that made things easy for them when oil prices were really high. And then the 80s, they ran into all these headwinds and all the IMF fuckers came around and were like, all right, time to pay up. And they couldn't. And so... They basically had, they had to reduce services to the people, you know, which pisses people off. They had to, you know, cut things in their economy. And, and eventually, you know, the IMF, they always do this. They say they bust you out like the fucking mob and say, all right, like, give us your electricity grid, privatize your airports, you know, like, give us your TV station or something like that. Like, yeah. you need to start privatizing these things. So you get them in a vulnerable position and then you can start to fleece their fucking economy. So that, like, that's how I see it, you know, in yeah. terms of what historically and in fact, went down. Well, yeah, in terms of what, like, this document that's being drawn upon, in terms of what Pizar said, that is what he said. Like, this is actually the really relevant part that I think is worth reading this, like, you know, at length because, you know, not at extreme length, but, like, at a full, like, block quote 
because it sure. shows like what's left out, which is like the very clear orientation of this. He says, Mr. Chairman, all conventional tools of national policy, it seems to me, tools which interfere with the natural flow of international business, are rapidly becoming anachronistic, both here and abroad. The state itself, even a strong one, as the recent monetary storm in Germany has shown, is no longer a defendable economic entity. Everywhere, inexorable forces push toward a single unified world economy, in disregard of national frontiers and even ideological boundaries. In the West, the multinational corporation, the euro dollar, the de- uh, dissemination of technology and the growth of rapid communications are the instruments of this trend and a foretaste of what the future will be like. In the East, capitalist private enterprises and communist state enterprises are beginning to form joint ventures for mutual profit through a dogma-shattering development that might be called the trans-ideological corporation. Inside this vast and shifting landscape, our posture as a nation, as a leader of nations, has become awkward, if not embarrassing. We are reacting to international economic and financial developments in makeshift fashion, without a consensus on where we wish to go, hoping for things that have not been and probably cannot be achieved. The current monetary crisis suggests that other countries look upon us as a creditor looks upon a debtor. For Europeans, the dollar has become the object of an erratic love and hate affair. They welcome it as the fuel of trade and investment, and they despise it as the harbinger of inflation commanded from afar. Mr. Chairman, they are afraid of it and afraid for it. Understandably, the main focus of our economic policy will be upon action at home and interaction with the West, Japan included. But the problems of our domestic economic adjustment and the continuous squabbles with our closest allies should not obscure our long-term interests in the arena of East-West relationships. For here lie not only the potentially vast and hungry markets, but also unprecedented opportunity to supplement the thermonuclear standoff with a businessman's peace, a peace we can best afford, across the weakening ideological ramparts of Eastern Europe. More than our far-flung and costly military establishment, which, alas, we must not, we dare not, yet mantle, it is the tender weapon of our superior capacity for economic progress that will prevail in the historic contest with communism. So, a very, very different framing, like, when you see, like, what's left out, right? And that, You know what this sounds like, actually? Soros. It sounds like what Soros ended up doing, basically. Um, well, I think you're other, spreading honestly. a conspiracy theory of history right now. Uh, you uh-oh, know, Carl, uh-oh. Carl Popper would not and would be upset. Uh, that's where that phrase he's comes from, by the way, like the open the, society and his enemies. Yeah, he's, he's, he's um, describing the Popperian open society dream, basically, um, in that, like, you're going to use economic power to ideologically, like, dismantle. What was the phrase he used of, like... You know, like critical ideological damage um, or something. Yeah, uh, it's it would uh yeah it's it's uh, he, he wants to create a, a go across the weakening ideological ramparts and the tender weapon of our superior capacity for economic progress will prevail. There's a dogma shattering development, uh, which is the trans ideological corporation. So, dogma shattering development, exactly, yeah. and it did. That's exact. It literally, it was like a mind war and like an economic war, like simultaneously. Yes. and it like it shattered like the reality of like actually existing socialism in all of in most pretty much all the European countries. You know, whether it was you know Yugoslavia or the Warsaw Pact, the USSR, it like irrevocably like shattered it and made sure there was it's interesting that he says like but there's no ideology in the future but it's like that is an ideology like (laughs) implicitly this is like global neoliberal capitalism yes in terms and in terms of whitney webb's framing like 
it's actually like she's partially like right because like a lot of the things he predicted are like aspects of like global homogenization and like uh you know we are creating like a, a globalized economy that is subordinate to like multinational uh quote unquote mm-hmm. trans ideological corporations right yeah. like that are but the thing is where the sort of um the pitch to a certain audience comes in is that there are certain investments and again Everyone has their own like blind spots and investments when they're doing like research and writing, especially when, when the analysis comes in. Like it's a constant mm-hmm. struggle to get like past these. Um, mm-hmm. So rather than like attacking someone, it's rather to like you sort of like hearken uh, them to like notice the you know to invite them to like you know conceptualize this. But I think that there's a certain investment in like one American patriotism and two anti-communism that are pretty prominent on like the American like libertarian right wing which is as you said like definitely a constituency for like parapolitical research so like if you're trying to play to that audience not that i'm thinking this is necessarily a conscious thing you know i think that there's ways that like this could be addressed perhaps however like yeah like it like when you lose the fact that this is like very consciously like the design for like the dominance of the like american financial institutions and of capitalism per se then you know, that is a problem, like, or, you know, that, that, is, a, that I, is something missing. Um, I will give Dr. Good his due, that he is right about that, that, like, if you really go up the food chain and travel up all the interlocks, like, eventually you're going to run into, like, the capitalist elite, basically. Like, there, there kind of is no daylight. And often, I mean, it's very dynamic, but, you know, basically the uh, the intelligence agencies, people who serve in government, who go in and out of government, people like Anthony Blinken, these lawyers, kind of mob adjacent motherfuckers, like all these people oftentimes like, you know, maybe uh, like the driving force of, you know, various operations that they're doing, not always, but like often would be at the behest of a corporation or to serve because in a certain kind of perspective, like, I think you see this from the origins of like the CIA, you know, there's a tendency to look at something like, oh, uh, this guy in Guatemala is going to nationalize all the do land reform and take a bunch of fucking farmland away from United Fruit. Um, you know what? That's a national security concern. That means American corporate American corporation is going to lose fucking money. You know, like, so therefore it's a national security concern. I think it's like very deep baked, deeply baked into the logic of how like intelligence agencies uh, operate, even though there's often various ideological kind of dressings that they kind of put on top of it to sort of, I think even mask that from a lot of like the, 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 your everyday, like, you know, person. Cause like when we say CIA, oftentimes like we're not even talking about just like your normal bureaucrat spook. Like we're talking about like the Alan Dulleses, the George Bushes, like, people that that move in very high circles in the world you know and uh and and have the juice to like turn you know the pentagon or the cia like to their will and like i don't know just the idea that even though i i get that i I think she also brought up um actually something that didn't barrett bring this up like the 90s china gate scandal mm-hmm. with like weird shit going on with the clinton administration i mean that's another that's actually a very like i'm not saying that uh you know i think these are all really valuable things to like look into and i think the chinese case is more complicated because there was a period where 
China and the U.S. I mean, we actually did offload our entire industrial capacity to China. We never did that with the Soviet Union. Like the Soviet Union, we kind of talked about it and dangled it in front of them a little bit and then like double crossed them and like destroyed their country. But mm-hmm. uh, but in the case of China, no, we actually did like enter into a very uh, for a while, you know, mutually productive partnership you know, from the perspective of American capitalists, at least. And now that's starting to crack a little bit. But there was a period, you know, where it's like we talked about Bill Casey hanging out with the head of Chinese intelligence in the 80s. And there were definitely like underworld uh, kind of connections like there was kind of Chinese money like floating into the U.S. economy in the 90s in weird ways. And maybe there was even I, I think maybe from the American side, they thought that oh, this is a great... Because, I mean, in a way, that did come true. Like, America offloaded all of its industrial capacity to a communist country, which then was, like, the, you know, the workers that produce everything. And then we, like, continue to lord of the world with, like, the petrodollar and our banks and our advanced technology and shit like that. And the elites were just having a field day. It was wonderful. Like, from the American elite perspective, it was totally awesome. Um, and now I think they're getting a little nervous about it. And so I don't know that, that to bring us up to today now, you know, I try to be very careful with anything like, for example, like in the Biden administration. I mean, you turn on Fox News, even without Tucker, all you're going to hear about is like CCP linked Biden family, like they're in the mm-hmm. pocket of the CCP and stuff. And uh, th- I mean, there are like weird Hunter Biden, like business connections in China. Absolutely. And stuff. But at the same time. Like the U.S. is really, I think it's not just the right wing. Like all of the U.S. apparatus is moving towards a more confrontational stance with China over Taiwan and over the Ukraine war and everything. And their diplomacy efforts, you know, in like Saudi Arabia and in Africa and things. So, you know, I I think it, it might be too easy of a conclusion to jump to or too clean to be like, Yeah, like Biden, just like how, you know, Trump's a Putin agent. Like, I don't think Biden, Biden's an American puppet at the end of the day, right? Or, you know, whoever's got the most juice in America is probably the one puppeteering Biden. And now I find it hard to believe like Xi Jinping and like the globalists, you know, like in the West are like actually have like a long term plan together to form a one world economic dystopia under horrible surveillance like i don't i don't think that that literally is is something that uh is happening and uh, you know but it is to say that yeah maybe china's in a kind of a more liminal position Our, our cold war is a little more gray with them than it always was with the soviets but i think i can confidently say that the soviets like were not and even when i think whitney webb at some point mentions that like oh they they were working with contacts, you know, these underworld guys were working with contacts in the Red Mafia of the KGB. I think there was a book called Red Mafia that we came across, right? We didn't read it. Mm-hmm. But uh, but even that, I think, deserves much closer examination. Because what do you mean when you say the Red Mafia? I think it's easy to jump to a conclusion, because Americans grow up hearing this shit nonstop, that it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, obviously the KGB was the most evil, corrupt organization ever. They were completely totalitarian and everyone was afraid of them, but they were also completely inept and corrupt and, and pieces of shit. So they were obviously a mafia because nobody really believed in communism, et cetera. And so, like, yeah, there was this red mafia. But, like, I don't know. When I hear red mafia inside of the KGB, I think of, like, traitors that 
made deals with powerful people in the West to betray like the Soviet Union and facilitate its collapse. Like a ton of gold went missing in 1991, I think, like from the central vault, you know, in Moscow before the Soviet Union collapsed and like it was never found. So they think like KGB, some people in the KGB probably, you know, jacked it and took it off to Switzerland or whatever. But like there clearly were, you know, kind of fifth columnist like type people that probably were working with like Western forces, intelligence agencies, business people, etc., like preparing for like the downfall of socialism and the explosion of like capitalism basically. But to say that like the entire KGB was like plotting with like evil capitalists in the West to destroy the Soviet Union, I don't buy that. In fact, like it was a lot of the KGB and military people that like tried to overthrow Gorbachev, right? In in the coup yes. in August. I mean, 91. certainly like again, it's like, yeah, I think it's also there's certainly like connections and like interlocks and there's relationships between these things. Um, but that doesn't mean that every, like, you know, uh, she and like Biden or like, you know, all the sickos like are getting in a room together and they're like, this is how we unite the world, like under, you know, the reign of the antichrist, uh, or what, like, you know, something like that. Um, that is something that happens like through all these like different agencies, like pursuing their own power, which like, you know, does ultimately take like a similar shape. I think honestly, like again, like Pisar has like a a pretty like uh, illustrative uh, exposition of it. Like he says, um, you know, he gets asked by a senator Ribikoff, "How about China? Do they need our trade? Do they want our trade? Can it ever have any significance to us? Because apparently this iceberg is cracking. Where do you see us going, or where do you think we ought to go with China?" This is in the seventy, nineteen seventy, mm-hmm. by the way, Mister Chairman. I would not want to answer you in the context of what has come to be known as ping pong diplomacy. I do not understand that kind of diplomacy, and I'm a little afraid of it. When people play ping pong, they inevitably smile, and you never know what is behind those smiles. But looking at the more concrete evidence we have, it is a startling fact that today 80% of China's trade is with the capitalist West and not with the communist East, whereas in the early 1960s it was the reverse. Now, how did this come about? The Russians were industrializing China. China purchased from the Russians in the late 50s and the early 60s all kinds of plants and installations and infrastructures that were designed to help them make that great leap forward that Mao Zedong was talking about. But once they started to abuse each other over who spoke for the the purity of communist doctrine, the Russians got worried and they abruptly cut off most supplies. Again, I feel like that's probably not an accurate representation. But anyway, many of the very... I don't know, though. Khrushchev. Uh, Khrushchev. (laughs) Little liar. uh, Fuck you. Many of the very expensive plants that that the Russians had built in China never became operational because the Russians refused to supply the turnkey. The result is that all the expensive material is rotting in the rain and the Chinese will never trust the Russians again. Being people that know how to handle dialectics, the Chinese are now entering a phrase where Russia was in 1925 when they asked Henry Ford, the grandfather, to come and help them build an automobile industry. The Chinese are quite likely to come to the United States, probably operating from a Canadian base in the beginning, and invite some of our major companies to sell them American equipment and know-how. It is interesting to note, Mr. Chairman, the basic telecommunication equipment and transportation equipment of China is American from before 1949 when the communists took over. This was never replaced. It would be very easy for them to say to American companies, we need your spare parts. We need to update the system, which is basically an American system. Now, should we or should we not respond? It is a delicate question. I believe we should. 
Nothing too strategic in a military sense, perhaps, but anything that helps them build up their economy. The people that should be most worried about our selling this type of technology to China are not so much ourselves, but Russia, because they are right there, next door. This is a strange game of ping pong whereby not the two players, but the bystander can lose out. Yeah, very prophetic. And then Nixon and Kissinger open up, right? Yes. I mean, it, it's very prophetic. And that is, I mean, we always go back to, uh, we end up going back to this thing a lot that I want to dissect more in the future. But like this, the consequences of the Sino-Soviet split, that's another thing that like normative kind of libertarian uh, anti-communist analysis often gets wrong is they don't delineate the difference between Russian, like Soviet communists and Chinese communists post Sino-Soviet split. Mm-hmm. Like they just, it's all bad communists. And they, I think a lot of people maybe forget, you know, or they don't get reminded enough that these countries were beefing from the early 60s onward. And it had profound consequences for like global geopolitics. And it ended up pretty much getting exploited very cleverly by America, you know, in the starting with opening up to China and then through the 80s, like we got the Chinese kind of to help us in a lot of our geopolitical power plays. And oftentimes they were on like weird sides of history, like invading Vietnam in the late 70s. Like, what the fuck? Like, hmm. you know, and like arming the Mujahideen, like to get back at the Soviets, like like people that were paying attention in the U.S. foreign policy circles, like really glommed on in that and realized, I mean, the debate is even going on today. Like that's Tucker's whole beef is that you like, you should never let China and Russia like become allies because then they truly like don't, they're too, they're too powerful. It's like you can get in a bar fight with one guy, but then if like his three friends show up, you're fucked. And like, that's, I think that that might be driving a lot of the anxiety today around like the war in Ukraine and stuff that, you know, we see is like you kind of happen to agree with, but it's coming from a different place than you are, you know, where they, they're more worried about China at this point And they figure like, why piss off both of them at the same? Like, we really want to piss off China, but, you know, we can't piss off both of them at the same time. And this is like a long term way of thinking in like the U.S. foreign policy establishment. And so, yeah, like the idea of uh, him saying we should open up to China that does not mean that he's a secret communist, right? Um, that, that might be the no. misinterpretation. Absolutely. Right? N- yeah, absolutely not. It absolutely does not mean that at all. It's the opposite, right? Like mm-hmm. it's... Um, and oftentimes you can get a lot more with, you know, what do they say? Like a lot more with honey than with uh, vinegar or whatever the fuck. Like, you know, it, it makes sense that they would have people that have friendly relationships with the communist countries to do kind of like low key diplomacy and open inroads into their economy and stuff like that. Like that's uh, one of many tools in a toolkit. So, yeah, I think libertarians often jump to, you know, or just the I think their identification of like totalitarianism is so wrapped up in like communism basically that when they look at things like the, I don't know, the COVID lockdowns, the vaccine mandates, things that are going on right now, even RFK Jr. does this where he, you know, he kind of says like totalitarian governments are always the same. Like whether it's, you know, Hitler's Germany or Stalin's Russia or Mao's China. And I'm like, oh, come on. Like, why are you lumping those all in together? Like they're exactly the same fucking thing or that like totalitarian it's a very hannah arendt kind of thing that's very like a lot of americans just accept that like 
totalitarianism is just like a type of government that encompasses all the bad governments that we don't right. like and yes like it's a it's almost like a it, it is an ideology unto itself rather than being like a thing that various ideologies resort to under, or yes and, and it's also some like are more liable to do it but i mean it's also like a yeah it's a different paradigm of like how to control people like maybe but again it's really hard to see through like what is like actuality like again like it gets down to almost like the experiential level of like people's feeling of like self-actualization like because yeah it's like okay but the premise of that is that for instance like in like a liberal democracy like the united states like we this is not totalitarian but of course like our freedom is rich in many ways and a lot of the things that like a lot of the quote-unquote freedoms that we have are actually like disguised mechanisms of control so it really comes down to like like the like the experience like we don't feel free like you know even though our society is quote-unquote not totalitarian whereas like you know did like every soviet or every person in china in the uh, 1970s not feel free perhaps not but again, it's like kind of a like it's sort of a, a vain distinction in a way like uh, there's like a contrast that can be made. But I'm not really sure like to how much like it holds up to reality and how much of it is like an ideological thing. Like, again, like yeah, this is this I, is I like I don't like it because it, at the on the one hand, there are increasing mechanisms of control all around us we all see it we all experience it and like we know that it's getting bigger and more like the the all the momentum is going towards control and it seems to be like the majority of the people that end up in power are are pretty jazzed about that and want to use that and like they will use it if they get like an opening to you know so in the sense okay i could say that there's like a there are like a strains of quote unquote totalitarianism, but it's so deeply identified with like uh, communism, which like, you know, you could call some of the policies like totalitarian, but it was happening under such a different context. Like, I, I do think it's like. I mean, like and also should like out the distinction it, between well, and like a lot of it relies on the distinction, which I think is maybe partially like the critique of of Whitney Webb in some ways, where there's a sort of distinction between like big business and like the government, you know, where like really they work together and like one is like often supportive of the other, you know, like ca- like capitalist multinational corporations and like the state are deeply intertwined, including like the deep state, yes. right? So it's like, and, and I think, are. you know, I think that's, well, it's, I think Whitney Webb does she like does acknowledge touch, this. She, d- she so, does acknowledge this. Yeah. yeah I mean, so, I don't but this know is like this whole idea it, that like, oh, you know, if you have like the cops, like, you know, if there's like a, you know, uh, police like on the street saying like, you need to go here, that's like totalitarian. But like, you have to, like, you don't get um, election day off. You know, you have to like work this many hours a week in order to survive. You can't like mm-hmm. live without a roommate. Like you have to pay mm-hmm. for like all like health insurance, like that's not totalitarian. Like that doesn't take uh, away that, your freedom. That, was exactly, that is I freedom. Think, like, I feel like Stalin made that exact point. Like when uh, Anna Louise Strong interviewed him, maybe back in the twenties. That was literally his argument. Was like uh, being poor is like totalitarianism. Like, well, like it off. is. Like uh, He's got a point. He's got a point. Like, um, and that that's why I would. That's where I would say, like, even if you feel like ultimately like the you know the the end wasn't worth the means of like what you know communist governments resorted to uh their goal i feel is like laudable and rational and like good overall 
And you could say that uh, maybe they deviated and and it uh, maybe the, the dark forces of human nature just blah blah blah, and that's why we can never try it again. But you know, when you look at our system, it's like the express intent of it. Of course, we dress it up in language, but really, when you look at like, the laws and the way everything's set up, it's like no, like a very small group of very wealthy people get to control like basically be an oligarchy and control everything and the law like backs that up and we're all just supposed to be like yay like that's freedom exactly and freedom like, is the freedom is the sort of uh, ideological gloss that's put over it whereas like maybe freedom wouldn't be emphasized as much as like a positive value like that's where like the mm-hmm. liberal component comes in where like this mm-hmm. is how this is all being justified and rationalized is through this logic of freedom that like without if these oligarchs didn't rule us then like we wouldn't be free like that's the price of freedom is that like we got to be ruled by like a small cadre of oligarchs but like yes, that's yes. bullshit and like that is like the level of like you know that is just like the rationalization that's just the ideological gloss whereas like if you said oh you know this is necessary for equality or like this is the dictatorship of the proletariat that's a different yeah. explanation for like things that may be unjust as well like you know sure so again but it obviously like, and I, I think I do think there was an element of like them being less like sneaky about displaying like their sort of authority because their goal was on its face like very like laudable <laughs> in a lot of ways. Whereas like the capitalist has to mystify everything through like ten layers of psyops and abstractions. So like they're going to hide when they use their authority. Like, they're going to try to hide it as well as possible. Because then people really are going to be like, what the fuck? And, you know, meanwhile, they're like, well, we're doing this for the people. So, you know. Yes, yeah, like, so it's a, also it, like a cultural. There's a little less shame around it. Yeah, there's cultural, cultural and ideological too. difference. Yeah, that like it's just a matter of emphasis in certain ways. And that doesn't like when it comes down to I've always found it like the whole thing is like people give up their freedom for security, like to be like one of the dumbest like bromides in the world. Because like if you don't have security, you're not free. Like, if you're not, if you don't feel secure, if you don't feel safe, you can't actualize yourself. It's like a false binary, in in my view. Like, I, I obviously mm-hmm. I get what people are getting at, but, like, it, you know, it's a false binary. Like, the idea that, like, you know, if you, do, if you don't feel free, you can't actualize yourself. So the idea that, like, oh, you know, because they're, like, they don't have the ability to participate in a capitalist marketplace that, like, uh, is this enables this uh, rule by these small cadre of oligarchs, you know, they don't have freedom, so they're, like, unhappy, but do they really feel, like, less free than Americans feel? People who are, you know, I don't think that's necessarily I true. Think so. I think even Joanna Stingray made that point. Sus Joanna Stingray made that point about, like, visiting the Soviet Union in the 80s and how, like... It actually, like, yeah, there's certain things you couldn't do, but, like, basic rent was, like, almost free, and, like, food was super cheap, and there was, like, public transportation everywhere, and, like, you had to have a job, so, like, you had a way to support yourself, and, you know, of course, like, there's... Not everybody had exactly what they wanted and all these other stuff, but it was like, oh, like if I wasn't, she was talking specifically about like underground rock musicians and how they all had day jobs, like they all had pretty stable lives. She's like, yeah, like you could think, oh, they're so oppressed because they can't get on Melodia, but like in in America, you'd be like working two jobs and like fucking in debt and like stressed out all the fucking time. Unless the CIA decided to finance you. But, um, (laughs) no, but like, uh, you know, no, yeah, exactly. Like a lot of nuance there. 
No, you for sure. Like, and I think that and, that yeah, uh, very very. And much when people true. invoke it in just this casual way, like what, like because of COVID, like it's like what this isn't Stalinist Russia. Like I, I just like wish people wouldn't invoke that because it obscures the the people who are really doing the bullshit, which is like the Western elites, like the capitalists, like the call is coming from inside the house. The, you know, the when it comes to the history, the fucking house. when it comes to the Cold War history, like especially to like suggest that this is about like, you know, this group was actually working in some way for the Soviet Union and trying to like subvert like the uh, like America or something. I don't know if that's like really what's meant to be like if, if that's really like what the big takeaway is supposed to be. But like that reading is certainly like possible. And like I feel like there is a little bit of like avoiding the sort of very heavy cold warrior aspect of this stuff, you know? Um, and I think in some ways, like the analysis of the like uh, ultimate, like uh, desideratum of it, like holds up. Like we do have like a homogenized, like uh, globalized economy, you know, a, a more integrated world economy than like ever in history, like partially because the Soviet Union collapsed, like not because mm-hmm. it, you know, became, uh, you know, a one world government or whatever. So like the multi- multinational cor- uh, corporations are a defining characteristic of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of those things like did bear themselves out and definitely are worth like mentioning. It's a very interesting and compelling history. But like, you know, in failing to acknowledge a sort of Cold War aspect of this, like especially when it comes to the Soviet history, it is like a big it's a big oversight. I don't know if that's like ideological or if it's just as simply like, you know, there's many factors that could produce it. Something to like consider, you know, and there's all like there's mm-hmm. as many like once you get into that aspect of like these things, that's that something that definitely coheres a lot of uh, these sort of linked uh, intelligence, like organized criminal and like, uh, you know, financial operations during this time or, you know, uh, corporate operations during this time is this sort of uh, Cold War context. And often like sometimes yeah. it does move across these lines, but a lot of the time. It's like, you know, kind of with, for lack of a better word, like imperialist motives. And sometimes like for the imperialist is the perfect word. It was quite literally. And and like we won that struggle, like in the context of like two different economic systems, one of them triumphed and it was ours, the capitalist oh, yeah. system. Uh, Pizar uh, got everything that he wanted in terms of what he describes like in this hearing. Like the liberals and the conservatives, you know, like they all got their their piece. Like the liberals were playing a more sophisticated game in a lot of cases than like the the ravenous, you know, anti-communist types. But like the the goal was kind of similar, was like capitalist penetration and undermining, like the ideological, social, economic undermining and like neutralizing them as a political force. Yeah, and, and to protect our position back. as the world leaders and make sure that, you know. Exactly. Yeah, we, yeah, and become the leader of the world, AKA, and so yeah, like, and this is we, like, I, I think this we is have a to we, reckon with that. Yeah, and this is a we thing. Like, this is like you know, it's not like, like we're t- working together. Like being at this hearing, it's like, listen, like you are the representatives of the state, you know, of the government that is like quote unquote representative, and I'm mm-hmm. like the sus lord, and like this is how we need to like you know we the I like this lawyer and also someone who works like within the quote unquote common market. Like mm-hmm. this is how we can we together can win <laughs> exactly and that and they did it and i don't think it's because he was a secret communist in any way no because then he would have lost 
Well, yeah, I, I mean, there were a few that, you know, like uh, Kim Philby or whatever that like fled, you know, uh, over the years. But like in general, all these guys that were, you know, so interested in opening up the Soviet Union, like really played a critical role in like its dissolution. And that that is what a lot of them it was like a lifetime passion of theirs to like destroy the Soviet Union. They were all obsessed with it. So, you know, the idea that Bill Casey is a secret communist no, 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 <laughs> like, no, yeah, no, he's too fucking Catholic for that. No, like, definitely not. Uh, he was a sicko, um, probably maybe a pedo, but definitely a nefarious dude. But, but that dude was a Wall Street lawyer. He was, you know, he was all about, you know, the freedom of business. And I don't know, like, even like diving in all these conspiracy theories, you know, reading a lot about this stuff, like, being able to merge it with the kind of like, I don't even want to say Marxist theory, but yeah, somewhat Marxist theory, but also just like the Marxist political position of the 20th century of like these governments and these parties and all these people and how they were reacting to like what the CIA was doing. And I was like, damn, actually like, yo, they were kind of like, you know, calling this out while it was happening and being like, this is fucked up. You you guys are being sus imperialists, like blah, blah, blah. And, and actually I think there was a lot of coherence to like their worldview and their, you know, maybe not down to like every fine point but they it was through looking at this parapolitical stuff and then kind of going back to some of the like the marxist theory and political writings where i kind of got pilled on like you know while not perfect like in the grand view of history these are kind of the good guys and i think americans just have to it doesn't mean you have to like start larping as like a communist or whatever the fuck or be like i be a self-hating america kkk and like person or you know, I think the performative Marxism actually doesn't help because it's like it 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 doesn't approach people that might be like kind of susceptible to like hearing out, you know, a different uh, an alternative history argument by front loading kind of like conflict and like you're a piece of shit and stuff like that. So I don't know. But I found yeah. it to be a very like these two things actually synergetically work really well together. So yeah, so I think I they mean, I think they should be. like to me, the good guys like in history are like. I don't know, like the oppressed, like people of the earth, <laughs> like you know, like it's not like indeed, any yeah, state yeah. or government yeah, I don't like even, necessarily. I don't if there really are indeed that. good guys, like you know, I mean, I identify them more with the oppressed people of the earth than our own side, basically. There, and well, I think maybe it boils down to like that. Certainly, to some like, like who is you know, more the on current, the, side the current. Of, if we were looking at like you know, what is the current threat that like we people need to be mindful of, like as we enter into the future, like who are the people who are making the decisions about what our lives look like, you know, in the future? Are those people communists? No. Whether, whatever they say that like, I mean, uh, I guess you could say like, uh, oh, well, in China, is that a different situation? I mean, again, uh, it's a, it's a no, sensitive issue, it's but it's a little bit of a gray area, but like um, the certainly like, you know, his vision, like the multinational corporation, like that is the defining characteristic of like what is, uh, you know, the now uh, the global economy that uh, and the, the mechanism of control that we're subject to now. And like, it's true that like maybe a lot of these people were maybe less ideological, like, you know, they weren't afraid of like ideological contamination. They weren't like people who would yeah. like at the idea of like working with a communist, like, you know, uh, integrating with a communist state uh, organization, like my corporation, exactly. like, no, like they, you know, they weren't like that. 
but he said, like, they Ivy still League like Yankees. They like they still like they were they I don't even know if they were ideological capitalists because like their capitalism was like second nature because it just is a development of their own greed and lust for power. <laughs> they didn't even think about it. Like they would do whatever they could to secure like their own power or their own control, which is tied with the control of these financial institutions that are embedded with like the u.s mm. state it's also it, it is worth mentioning because there's like so many examples of it that like if a lot of these powerful lawyers and kind of operators were running around actually like at like they actually did have communist sympathies and they were setting up joint ventures and shit i mean like just one interesting example is a uh, larry eagleburger's partnership with yugo motors in the late 80s like he was partnering up as a lobbyist i think after when he was out of government in the 80s working for kissinger associates mm -hmm. he was like partnering with yugo to like sell yugos in the united states and shit like that does that mean larry eagleburger is a fucking titoist or a communist fuck no mm -hmm. in fact he played a role in destroying that country a few years later um partly because he was he was so intimately familiar with it and so the idea that somebody like of kind of power, influence, access, whatever, starts doing business deals with the fucking Soviets, I would say that like if they're a communist, they would potentially be in a world of fucking hurt and trouble with their own governments for doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like people found that out during the Red Scare. Like you can't just run around, pal around with Reds. Right. You'll be blacklisted. You'll have your career destroyed. Yeah. And everybody learned that lesson. So the odds that anybody that is doing that shit in the 70s and the 80s probably has some deep connections to like the national security state maybe is a CIA asset of some kind or, yeah. you know, or a high level corporate person that's like part of that whole milieu that is working towards those types of goals so that, you know, whether they're an officer themselves or just somebody that, you know, maybe has relationships with CIA people, you know, they're uh, probably reporting back to somebody about what they're up to and like they're being watched and, you know, they're not communists. Like they're, you know, they're doing, uh, they're doing some like, you know, little market infiltration work. And uh, that ended up being very important, like when it all started collapsing. So, yeah, probably not. I think the odds of a genuine communist existing in like the deep state underworld milieu for decades or, you know, much less like being dominated by such people uh, is is like not that is, I think, ahistorical. You know, they didn't win. No. And, and the Chinese communists are like maybe a, they're a somewhat separate story, but they're also their own thing. I don't think they're I, I I definitely do not think they're puppet mastering like they're you know first the of all they're elites. definitely not they're not uh, their economy isn't identical to the U.S. economy but they're heavily like integrated and like I mean the what was what uh, uh, what Pisar described in terms of the future of China where like you have like sort of these communists or like uh, companies these communist trusts acting like capitalists and like their economy you know, his vision for the future for it becoming as much like the American economy as possible. Mm -hmm. Like that has banned itself out, you know, like they're nominally yeah. communist. Like they mm -hmm. are not identical to the you know, like U.S. and it's it's uh, economic structure uh, and like exactly. However, well, I don't think that we should pretend that they're like, uh, you know, f like really anti-capitalist. Uh, I think I don't know. 
I don't know what your I think take is, but I think it's highly nuanced, and <laughs> I, I think um, there are, it's not so much that they are kind of against uh, capitalism. They're they're so much more integrated than the Soviets were in the global capitalist system. That, but I could see them transitioning. Uh, I think they feel it. My impression is that they feel like they can achieve a lot of their goals by maintaining kind of the general structure of the international capitalist system, but there might be some changes they want to make to whether, you know, what the global reserve currency is, different kind of trade agreements. Yes. Like, things those of things that are different. But and, and that might have an evolutionary, want, you, know, you know, is their vision like a, a society like without capital? Like, is there like, do we really believe that like we're moving towards even like, you know, that chi- that that China right now is a dictatorship of the proletariat or something like, no, I don't know. Like it, it, it does seem to be a little bit different than <laughs> like the Deng Xiaoping, like Hu Jintao kind of days when they were very, very about like just kind of promoting capitalist development. Yes. And like that was they different. were really, really they never fully abandoned kind of Marxism. She talks a lot more about like Marxist theory and it is is much more forward with that kind of stuff but at the same time it's a little bit it's complicated i think so you know i i'm sort of sitting back and watching how it's all going down but i don't think they're like puppet mastering the world they're also very different from the soviet union so they're very integrated with the world and in the past have been somewhat complicit in like certain things i mean there there are times of like i mean maybe it was like china didn't feel powerful enough to stand up to the u.s and now they do it might be a little bit as simple as that that they've built up their productive forces their military their international prestige and now like america is going to come at them with that attitude they have and they finally are powerful enough to to you know go a little wolf warrior mode and say fuck you you know whereas they had to be play very nice with the americans for like 30 40 years and just kind of like oh you want to invade iraq okay like just make sure we get some of the oil you know, and like we're not going to say shit about it. Like, I mean, do I mean, we think that it, they it, wanted to say don't invade Iraq? No, 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 not particularly. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. They were very because they were so integrated. I, I think there was a lot of behind the scenes stuff, but they definitely. I mean, that was not like a breakup moment between the U.S. and China. But now, when there's conflicts, even though China is like publicly playing a very neutral role, they've definitely gotten a little more uh, assertive in like not going along with the u.s or like pursuing alternatives and things like that yeah i mean they usually like so things um, are changing it's not static like yeah of course it's evolving this one world paradise that paisar dreamed of like it i I wouldn't say it's like about to go away overnight but i think it's it's like running into some serious structural headwinds after about you know 30 40 years and I think that that's where you see a lot of like the insanity and the anxiety and stuff and just the out of sortsness of like the U.S. elites right now, because it feels like uh, like, fuck, um, we've had it so good with our petrodollar and all this other shit, you know, for like four decades. And now like the credit card bills are kind of coming due. And there's other people that and we've we've shat on our own reputation around the world. A lot of the world rightly doesn't like us very much right now. Right. Yes. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah, I don't know like what, I mean, I think you're right that there is like a shift in power. Like again, that there's potentially like a shift in, uh, you know, we talk about multipolarity, but mm-hmm. maybe like a pole, a shift in the poles of power or definitely a, uh, an emerging 
uh, sort of weakening of the of the unipolarity that has existed for you know a while, so especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union um, mm-hmm. and a little bit before. But I don't know like what uh, that reality like looks like, or if I'm not necessarily like again. Obviously, like no one can ever. The United States right now is like the the biggest like uh, force of evil in the world, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, and so I hope for its destruction. In the future, like, will the force that replaces it like be better, like, or more heroic, or will it even will it even be replaced? You know, will it like weasel some way to like you know either adapt and survive or like continue to prevail? Stranger things have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, will the status quo just continue for like, you know, longer than people imagine? Because that also could be the swerve, you know, like where sometimes unexpected things happen where and usually this is the case. People lack an ability to imagine things different from how they've been. But, you know, sometimes the surprising thing is that things sort of stay the same. So I don't wonder if this sort of like uh, this integrated relationship and this kind of yeah lukewarm like uh, or well, yeah, it's like a not even a cold war. It's like a cold peace or like a cold co- cooperation. Uh, if that's that like that status quo will continue. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, it's, it's heating up a little bit. But yeah, we'll there see. have been like sort of some flare ups. There have definitely been some flare ups. But I don't know. Yeah, I'm still kind of uh, I'm still kind of skeptical. You know, if there's like some kind of like engagement with China, I guess that'll be my uh, my Russia Oh, was never going to invade Ukraine moment because, you know, I'm still kind yeah. of a, there definitely have been some flare ups. So, you know, there's, I should, there's I should some Taiwan shit this. popping off. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. But the entire world know. is ditched them. Uh, th- th- there's things going on, but yeah, I, I cannot try to predict what is going to happen. Yeah. I'm still, I'm pretty skeptical. I mean, if it doesn't happen, it'll be blamed on like CCP Biden, but I feel like CCP Trump will also like not, I mean, he, he uh, this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, it's interesting how Trump actually is the most left wing person because he said that uh, she was brilliant. Right. Um, so I'm sure that they'll figure out some solution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely.